0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I am Trevor Dame, and as always, he's Matt Feuerstein. And, as occasionally, we have our Boston correspondent, who you might know from Joe versus the World, the great wrestling podcast. You might know him from Joe Gagne's Funtime Pro Wrestling Arcade on YouTube, and you might know him from the Five Star Match Game Podcast Wrestling Game Show on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. It's Matt Feuerstein, who's not the guest, and it's Joe Gagne, who is the guest. Hello, gentlemen. <laughs>
1: stellar introduction there. Not confusing at all to the listener.
0: I mean, I thought it was bad,
1: so...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding, you're the best.
0: I I can find replacements, you know. I can... You (laughs) you do well to replace me, I agree. No, 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 no. But if you want to listen to a podcast, or many podcasts that are much better hosted than me and have much much more professional um segues than you could try all the other podcasts here on the pro wrestling only podcast network and as always I always like to spotlight some podcasts we have to say goodbye to this week in wrestling which has ended its great run so but you know with the the circle of wrestling podcast life we have a couple new additions to the network one would be a Bigfoot pro wrestling podcast which is all about Pacific Northwest wrestling hey I live in the Pacific Northwest. And the other one would be Days of Thunder. That's right, a podcast exclusively um, devoted to watching old episodes of WCW Thunder.
2: And and those guys, if they have a Patreon, everybody's got to give as much as possible to that Patreon because they are earning their money.
0: Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so uh, as always, check it out. Lots of good podcasts there. Some new stuff going on. And apart from that, I guess we should just get to... Uh, I always get At this point in the podcast, I always go to any news that between the shows. And there's not really a piece of news, but there is a quote. And I thought I wanted to get uh, your guys' opinion on something that comes up in this quote. Especially Matt, because I think Matt has a far better memory for these kind of things than I do. So this is uh, a Mike Johnson bit when he was talking about the news surrounding the show. Mike Johnson a PW Insider. He writes... The SAT are pretty much done with Ring of Honor, although I could see them back in down the line. The, pr- the promotion is high on Dun and & Marcos and the outcast Killers moving up the tag ranks in the future. Dun & Marcos are really popular and have a fun gimmick while the killers have yet to be really showcased, but have shown great mic and ring skills when utilized. Mm-hmm. With the aforementioned The Briscoes, The Backseat Boys, Special K, and The Carnage Crew, Ring of Honor has the best tag scene of any promotion right now, including WWE. So I'm just going to ask you two, because my memory for timelines is bad, but taking us back to early 2004, do you think that is the best tag division in all of wrestling?
2: I feel like WWE's tag division at the time was not good. They did have enough tag teams to have two four-way tag team title matches at WrestleMania 20, which is only like a month after this. Um, mm-hmm. But they were bad. Those were both bad um, four-ways. So this was the era in TNA where America's Most Wanted was sort of just getting started, kind of, or really maybe not getting started, but they were like started, sort of starting to find their groove and like having some memorable matches. But I don't remember... Like, there was also Triple X, but I don't really remember, like, how many different teams there were. Um, I guess the main thing that I, get, I think you're trying to get at, and I agree with you, is that Ring of Honor's tag division was not good at all. Um, <laughs> they didn't really have very many good tag team matches ever, you know, except, you know, maybe a Briscoe's title match every once in a while. And Dunn and & Marcos, um, I mean, and the Outcast Kills, they did move up the tag ranks, I guess, uh, and, and definitely Don and Marcos, especially, they ended up having more competitive matches over the next couple of years. But the Outcast Killers never really did much of anything. Um, and I guess I'm not really answering your question, but no, no. yeah, ROH's tag division wasn't good. So if they were the best, then yeah, it was sad.
0: No, I think what you just did was clarify that this is almost like the tagline to the incredible, and I mean that sarcastically, Alien vs. Predator movies, which is it doesn't matter who wins, we lose. I like I think that you illustrated that wasn't a great being the best tag team division in in early two thousand four wasn't exactly a huge prize to win.
2: <laughs> yeah, like okay, so like what tag teams did WWE have? They had like the Bashams. And Hassan
0: Benjamin, didn't they?
2: Yeah, Hassan Benjamin, we guess were still around, and they had a Scotty Too and Rikishi, right? And um, Mark Jindrak and Chuck Palumbo weren't they a tag team? And <laughs> the du- so. the Dudleys, I guess, were sticking around. The were still there? Yeah, I mean, I guess like Orton and Batista, I think actually Flair and Batista were the tag team champions right around this time or a little before this.
1: Um, yeah, this is around the uh, big evolution. So they. Just so everyone, just so evolution could have all the belts, not just some grand statement on the tag team prowess of uh, Batista and uh, Ric Flair.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, those teams all existed. Oh, uh, Rob Van Dam and Booker T.
0: And and I guess it would be worth noting too that in that when uh, Mike Johnson in that quote just starts listing Ring of Honor tag teams, the second team he lists just after the Briscoes, the Backseat Boys, this turns out to be their swan song in Ring of Honor. So right, I mean it's weaker than even he he ends up knowing because this is it for them actually. He probably did not know at the time, but
2: right. And the Backseat Boys, I mean, Trent Acid had some good matches in ROH, but the Backseat Boys didn't really like no, not like not at all. So like. Yeah, I mean, the Baxi Boys were a good team, I guess, probably elsewhere, and they were charismatic, but if that's what you're, like, hanging your hat on for your tag team division, then shows you that things aren't very good since they did not have their best work in Ring of Honor by a long shot.
0: So, I guess uh, I just wanted to get your opinions on that, and I think that brings us, we can start on the show proper, which is the Ring of Honor 2nd Anniversary Show. It took place February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2004, at the National Guard Armory in Braintree, Massachusetts, in front of a reported crowd of 500 fans. Now... Joe, I want to get a bit of your perspective on this, but first, I just want to set up a bit of the saga here. Because as seemed to be the norm at this time, Ring of Honor had some troubles with securing places to run in Massachusetts. It's a long saga, and there's a couple quotes here that I thought, and then I actually did a little research. And it it builds to something I think that's kind of humorous, but we'll start off with just a quote from The Observer at the time. Dave Meltzer writes, Ring of Honor once again had to move its building location in the Boston area. The belief is that there is a local promoter who calls up the buildings they've been using, which have been local schools, saying bad things about the product and the promotion. Schools don't want any controversy or bad press, so they've canceled the dates. The February 14th show will now be in Braintree, Massachusetts, at the National Guard Armory on Union Street, and they've already booked return dates uh, for the... um, May 15th and August 28th. So keep that in mind, keep that little quote in mind as we move on to a, cl- a little clip I got from a Mike Johnson interview of Gabe Sapolsky. So Mike Johnson asks, recently Ring of Honor has had to juggle buildings in the Massachusetts area. I know you are originally from Massachusetts, so what is it like from that point of view to see so many problems? And Gabe Sapolsky responds, It's such a shame that some worthless individuals feel the need to try to bring us down for no reason other than jealousy. It's so selfish. If you don't like me or anyone with RF video... Don't take it on trying to stop us from running because you are only hurting the wrestlers and the fans. At least think of them before you pull this stuff. We have moved on and we have a new home in Boston now. It's the National Guard Armory in Braintree, Massachusetts. It's a great location just off I-93 with plenty of parking. It's also a few hundred feet from the Braintree stop on the Red Line, so it is easy to get to by public transportation, which is especially important up there. We have already secured the building for a number of dates so we won't be bouncing around anymore. It is very frustrating, but at the same time, it just makes us stronger and strive to succeed more in that area and make it our home. And I'll also note, Going back to The Observer, on this show, it did not make uh, the DVD, but Gary Michael Capetta made the announcement that Braintree would be the company's permanent Boston-area location and that nobody would stop Ring of Honor from returning. He apologized for all the venue changes the company made. Rob Feinstein was telling people that they had found out who had been calling venues forcing the switch and, quote, he's been taken care of, unquote. That sounds like Rob had someone killed. I don't think that happened. So if you're wondering if all these quotes are building to something, it is. Because I did a bit of research just looking ahead. So this Ring of Honor, after this show in Braintree, rang, ran three more shows in 2004 in Massachusetts. The next one was not in Braintree. It was in Lexington, Massachusetts. Then they went back to Braintree. Then they went to Revere, Massachusetts. Then in 2005, they ran in Cambridge, Massachusetts, then in Dorchester, then in Woodbridge, then back in Jor- Dor- to Dorchester, followed by Ring of Honor not running anywhere in Massachusetts for 13 months. Yes, so, but, but you're, missing a, you're missing an important point here. They all lived at the venue in
2: Braintree. They said that was their permanent home, so <laughs> they didn't say they were going to run shows there.
0: So, Joe, I was just going to ask, as a fan who attended a lot of these Massachusetts shows at the time, do you have any memory of how, like, weird this was that they constantly were moving at this time?
1: It was unusual, but to me, I always had, the the shows were never close to where I live. They were pretty much always at least an hour away. So it never bothered me in the fact, like, well, you know, I'll just drive somewhere else for an hour to go see Ring of Honor. And it it was like, you know, it was like a running joke, like you mentioned, all the different places they run and then they stopped running for <laughs> 13 months and they had an even longer break after that but and it was just like you know all right i'll go to ring of honor i always had to travel so it was never a big issue to me
2: but was there a venue that you liked and you were like oh bummer i wish they'd just gone back there i like that
1: one it's not like they ran like you know <laughs> kirk and hall or any famous building like that they were all just big national guard armories mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. i mean the i remember the drive to wakefield where Traffic was kind of bad around that time. But uh, besides that, they were just buildings, not one I favored over the other. You know, they were buildings. They were hot in the summer, and uh, <laughs> they were always an hour away. So it really didn't matter to me.
2: I, I, so, don't don't oh. you think, Trevor, that all this news like, about like, what's happening and all this stuff um, has a very ominous air? Like reading it, like that it was taking place right around this time, like February 2004, and you're like, oh, you poor saps. You don't know what's coming.
0: There's definitely a thing, too, later we'll get to that I just immediately thought of the Rob Feinstein scandal that's coming up soon in the timeline, but... But also, I really like the idea that, like, Rob Feinstein was telling people at the event that, like, we found the guy who's been calling things. Like, he's been taking care of. Like, everything is fine. Like, we've finally gotten the last wrinkle out. You know, everything is fine. Smooth sailing for Ring of Honor from here on. (laughs) There's, like, literally just a storm cloud right behind his head, I like to imagine at that point. But starting with uh, what we actually see when we start up the DVD. We open with Samoa Joe wearing a suit to celebrate the second anniversary show. He's standing in the ring in an empty building before the fans have been let in. Joe says that around a year ago, he took the Ring of Honor title from a man who was a joke and a disgrace. So ouch to (laughs) Xavier. And he's taken it around the world and still stands as the champion today. Uh, Joe talks about the first pure title champion being crowned tonight, while he's in a four-way, because Joe says only one man can't do the job against him. Joe says the only reason there's a pure title is because no one can beat the Ring of Honor World Champion. Just the standard, usual, short, very good Samoa Joe promo. It's weird, isn't it? Weird that like like how mean they are to
2: Xavier when he's still there. Like they act like he's like a footnote in history, and he's like still having matches,
0: and you know, m- often being kind of good. It kind of caught me off guard too because in Samoa Joe's uh, RF, I mean, Ring of Honor uh, done, straight shooting, shoot interview, they kind of asked him a couple leading questions where where they were like, you know, did you feel like you had to rebuild the Ring of Honor world title or build it up after Xavier? And Joe is very, like, complimentary towards Xavier. It's like, no, what are you talking about? So I was kind of surprised here where. Basically, it's just like, yeah, the title was nothing, and that, he doesn't even, I don't even, he doesn't even, t- I don't think he names Xavier he doesn't yeah. name, he's just like, oh, he's a. Jo- I took the title off a joke and a disgrace, so. Yeah,
2: well, also, like, at, at the um, main event spectacles, when Carino was doing, like, a list of people who who ran the, who, who had the ROH title, and they go,
0: Xavier, and Carino's like, who? And he was, like, on the same show. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel bad, like, Xavier's yeah. just an example of a guy who, I mean, we've talked about this before, but. He just got pushed too hard too soon. And he's actually probably doing better work now than he was doing as champ, except for the incredible Paul London matches. But it's just too late. He's already gotten that stigma on him. Exactly. And it's done for him. Next week I, like cut... uh,
1: I was gonna say I like Joe's suit a lot. He looked very fancy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this might have been the first time like if y'all was watching at the time that you you had probably seen some of Joe in a spiffy formal wear, so different side of joey's dressing like the champ now at least for this special occasion uh we cut to a backstage promo from the prophecy of allison danger dan moff and bj whitmer danger says they're suffering because christopher daniels is still out injured but he's left them a plan danger says they have hatred desire and courage running through them uh, Moff tells BJ that he can't stand him, but not bringing the title to Christopher Daniels would hurt him even more. Moff goes on to say another thing that drives him even crazier than Whitmer is Low Key, who he meets in the ring tonight in the four way for the first time since Low Key legit knocked him out in August. Uh, BJ jabs at Moff, saying Key might knock him out again tonight, and then Allison Danger's basically like, you two quit bitching, let's get the title. So the same promo we've been seeing quite a bit from these guys, Dissension in the Ranks. I don't know if either of you have anything to say about this. Nope. Nope. Apparently not. And so we move on to the start of the show proper inside the building. Christopher Daniels music hits, and someone that appears to be dressed up as Christopher Daniels comes out in the dark preacher getup with the little... I don't know what you would call it, the doily or the, not towel, but <laughs> yeah. over the head.
2: But we've already had it spoiled that he's not there, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never realized that, but exactly, yeah. We literally see a promo segment telling <laughs> us that Christopher Daniel isn't there, followed immediately by someone pretending to be Christopher Daniel, spoiling the surprise, because. But I, b- go ahead. Go on. I bet it worked really well in the building, though. Yeah, because it does. Yes. it is revealed, in fact, to be CM Punk, which gets quite loud boos. And, yeah, this is one of those neat little ring of honor things where if you were a fan of this product at the time and watched Punk go to WWE, he definitely lifted a few of his more successful ideas there. So he would basically redo this with the Jeff Hardy feud coming out to the Jeff Hardy music and full Jeff Hardy face, Peyton Regalia. But this is, I believe, the first time he had ever done anything like this. We get a loud We Want Daniels chant. Uh, Punk gets on the mic and he says he's ended the Christopher Daniels reign in Ring of Honor and says a new era starts tonight, the era of Straight Edge. And the Second City Saints are going to go after every single title Ring of Honor has. Tonight he's going to get the pure title. In Chicago, he and Colt Cabana are going to beat the Briscoes for the tag titles in a match that Punk says Bobby Heaton negotiated for him. And then after that, he's going after Samoa Joe and the Ring of Honor world title. Uh, Punk goes on to take off the Daniels outfit, and that's when John Walters' music hits. Out he comes. We get a loud, fuck him up, Walters fucking up chant as he enters the <laughs> ring. Uh, Punk bails to the outside, and he resumes his promo there, where he says, he's from Chicago, and the Bears kick New England's ass in 1986, and he's going to kick Walters' ass tonight. Punk then dedicates the match to Mike Ditka. So,
1: This yeah. is a uh, tragic consequence of the Boston sports uh, renaissance. His heels don't have anything to talk about now. This is just after the Patriots' second Super Bowl, by the way, so it's gotten no better. Uh, I just want to add for a little historical context, there was a a mystery entrant in this uh, tournament, and uh, there were seeds, oddly enough. I guess Punk was the seventh seed, but uh, other names tossed around were Spanky and Jerry Lynn, who did both appear in promos on this as the possible uh, mystery entrant. I don't think Punk was uh, conjectured about at the time.
0: Yeah, and originally um, there was some shuffling with this because originally the Briscoes were both going to be in this one-night pure title tournament as uh, singles competitors, and they ended up getting moved out to a tag match. And I guess the other thing we should acknowledge is this is the first time like on a DVD release that they've acknowledged, I'm sure it was probably on the website before this, but the idea that Bobby Heenan is going to come in and he's going to manage you know, CM Punk and the Second City Saints and he's negotiating them big title matches and of course... This ends up getting, his role gets largely postponed, and when he does come, it's a much quicker little cameo than a regular thing because of the whole fallout from the Rob, Sta- Fobs- the Rob Feinstein scandal, not the Rob Fobstein scandal. Uh, so yeah, that would have been interesting to see how much more of a role Bobby Heenan would have had if he hadn't have gotten scared off by the scandal. Um, and that brings us to the first match of the night, the first match in the Pure Wrestling Title Tournament. CM Punk defeated John Walters via pinfall in 13 minutes, one second. he reversed a roll-up into a bridging pin. Um, Matt, what did you think about this as an opener? Hey, well, first
2: thing I noticed, Todd
0: Sinclair, is it, was this his debut? Because I don't remember noticing him in I previous so shows. Because I thought the same thing. I was going to ask you that. So the fact that we're both asking that, I'm going to assume this was his debut in Ring of Honor.
2: Well, there, that's an answer to a trivia question right there. Um, but um, I, I thought this was one of the best matches of the tournament. Um, I thought that um, the crowd was really hot for this. And Joe, remember last time we were talking about how shitty that crowd was at... Uh, yes. what? Where was that again? The, the War of the Wire? That was in Framingham. Yeah, well, apparently Braintree's people are way more amped than framingham's people because the crowd
1: was really good on this whole show i thought um yes, i will say that there was a uh i think a new york bus trip up there so maybe that did um, help to contribute a little than i am to give credit to a new york yeah person.
2: come on take uh, some take some
1: credit buddy all right
2: <laughs> yeah it's this this the crowd this whole night was rocking i thought and they really added a lot to this match um it was kind of nice to see uh to hear ray murrow back in uh uh, back in action. Uh, not that uh, Chris Nelson was bad, but I don't know. Something felt like home about um, about um, and uh, 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 Murrow. Mur- Mur- yeah, Mark Murrow. Murrow and <laughs> Lovey. Um, but okay, so one thing that happened um, before the match was that Punk said uh, Boston is riding a Super Bowl wave, and this one is for Ditka. So I just wrote the Saints. <laughs> but not like the New Orleans Saints. You get what I'm saying. Um, Saints. S- Saints. Second City Saints.
1: Get it? All right. So, Thank you. I jokes like are the, better when you explain them.
0: Yes. The tag was... <laughs> uh, screw that joke. That tag was the best part in my opinion. Not got a second laugh
1: from me.
2: Okay, so top five <laughs> rankings. Uh, Saban was number five, which I put a question mark next to because that was surprising. Um, Walters <laughs> was four. Jay... Uh, Briscoe was three, and then Wa Moff and Whitmer were tied, so uh so just wanted to say that. Danger comes into the booth to say to complain about Punk mocking Daniels, and she's like, Well, we're not gonna bother with Punk tonight because we're focusing on their title match, so that was cool. Like just she comes in there just to be like, Yeah, we don't care about this. Um But um yeah, I thought that the match was good. I, I thought there were some really cool moves. Um One of the moves that I thought was the coolest was John Walters was standing on the uh on the um, apron, any arm drag punk over the top rope to the floor, which I don't think I've ever seen before, and I thought it was really cool. And and then Walters was working over the arms, and like you know they were just kind of doing like a, you know technical basic early thing, and yeah they were working hard, but um, Murrow goes. What a what a pace these athletes are are setting here, not a fast pace but a technical pace. And <laughs> I didn't know that technical was a descriptor to describe pastes, paces. Paces, um, but I apparently it is. Um, and there were some other cool moves too. Like um, Punk does like a tilt a whirl stomach breaker, which again really cool. Um, Walters does a lung blower to the front and the back, which I thought was really cool. And I thought that the – and I thought the crowd was just like going nuts for their chop battles and stuff. Um, they did like a – like Punk did like a cross-arm Michinoku driver. Like just – they were just – they were really busting out big moves. You know, they were working a real technical pace. And um, that was a joke.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the laugh. Um, so I, I got I got so like just wound up <laughs> in thinking about all the moves you were listing that I was just like took it at face value. You were- you're, you know what? You've convinced me it is a technical pace, Matt. <laughs> exactly. you got
2: Exactly. Um, but I thought the finish was actually really good. I usually don't like those, like, oh, he's pinning him, but then he gets pinned, finish, finishes. But the way Punk did it, where he, like, pulled him back into the pinning combo, I thought was really, really well done. And, like, out of nowhere, but in a good way. I don't know. I thought this was very good. A good opener.
1: Joe, what did you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Matt. This isn't something, you know, you see the lineup, you're like, oh, what's this going to be like? But it was actually... Really solid, some really good technical wrestling. They did a lot of scrambling for rope breaks. I imagine that was uh, kind of be a hint of what would come in the finals. And it's worth noting, pure title matches have their own set of rules, but the only match that had them was the finals, which was a a little weird. It's like the King of the Death matches being all straight matches until the end.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too. That was very weird. It was almost like they didn't want to burn out the crowd on the rules, but then that doesn't exactly... Show a lot of confidence in the rules, then. If it's like, well,
2: oh, they they, they clearly, yeah, they clearly did not have confidence in the rules, since like one of the whole shticks of the main event
0: was that the ref was bad at enforcing them. <laughs> yeah. But. yeah, we'll get to that. That's yeah, it's it's a pretty, it's, it's an interesting match to talk about. Uh, <laughs> but Joe, did you have any more thoughts?
1: i sorry to uh, get sidetracked there. No, no, I thought the crowd was great. I, I like the ending where Puck, Punk, Punk, uh, kind of snuck it out, but you know, still in a clean fashion. And uh, crowd heat was great. Crowd was great all night. And I'm not sure. Like, they finally let Walters have that big win at the final battle. And here he's just kind of back losing in the first round to his hometown. in his uh, hometown. Not to say that he should have gone to the finals or beaten Punk or anything like that. But it just seemed like, all right, they made some progress with the guy. And now he's just kind of back where he was.
0: This should have been a second-round match. Mm. Yeah. It, it, this was the kind of match where... Um like clearly if you look at the the other three matches in the first round all got probably at least 5 minutes less than this i think so clearly they thought enough of um of john walters to give him one of the two kind of premier one of the two or three premier like names in the in the tournament and they give him a good amount of time and let him go pretty even with punk but Yeah, there's still that optics of, it wasn't too long ago that John Walters was saying, you know, I'm not going to lose in my home state anymore, and he, like, won a match there, and here he is losing there again. Yeah. And the crowd, you know, like, the crowd in Massachusetts likes John Walters. They're pretty behind him. They're very against Punk, especially (laughs) after the whole Christopher Daniels fakeout. So it's a good even face-heel dynamic there. And I agree with you guys. I thought this was a good match. Um... It's weird, it's one of the kind of matches where I feel like, Matt, you actually like remind me of a lot of the moves, like the interesting moves during it, I actually, it was one of those matches where I remember that I enjoyed it, but as soon as it was done, a lot of the match kind of fell off my head, I feel like it's almost like a good generic example of the kind of baseline indie match of the times where there's a little bit of everything in it. You know, there's some innovative moves. They worked at a good, not fast pace, but a good, some would say technical pace. <laughs> and, um, and you know, they, they're doing like a little bit of everything and it's kind of back and forth, 50, 50. And you can just tell they're working like putting in a really good effort. It's like, it's hard to describe. It's just, it's kind of what I would just, this is like an example of why we consider like the generic, 2004 like work rate indie wrestling match and yeah but
2: with but with a really good crowd and talented people doing it
0: yeah and I, I i should note like absolutely you're you guys are right the crowd is very good it's probably one of the better crowds they've had in a bunch of shows yeah so uh yeah uh punk wins he goes on oh and i guess the other thing we should mention other than uh what joe mentioned the weirdness of the uh the tournament and the rules only for the pure tile tournament only being in the final match. I guess we should just talk a little bit, I think, maybe about the philosophy of wrestling tournaments. Because I thought one interesting thing about this show was we can get to it a little bit later, but low key gets r- randomly inserted into the th- world title three way to make it a four way after he had a falling out with Ring of Honor. And the reason the observer gives was it was done to boost ticket sales. I guess they were at one point lagging and we're not doing well. And it's kind of interesting to think about like when you, the nature of tournaments, because for so many indie wrestling companies, I was thinking about this today, the tournaments they do are the biggest shows they do all year. Like you think of PWG and the battle of Los Angeles is the biggest show they do every year. You think of Jakar and King of Tri- Trios is usually like the, gets the most talk of any show they do in a year is those tournament shows and you think of king of indies which was a tournament that inspired ring of honor or the original super eight tournaments or iwa mid with the king of the death matches and ted pay like every indie has a uh, big annual tournament and ring of honor which was like the biggest indie is the one thing they couldn't really figure out was to have a tournament that really caught on. I guess the closest was the second anniversary show. I mean, not the second anniversary, but the Survival of the Fittest tournament. But that was never a huge draw. And it's it's just interesting. I was thinking, huh, like they did this whole big tournament to crown a new champion. And fans weren't interested. But then I realized, well, on paper, if you look at the matches they could advertise, it was Doug Williams versus Chris Sabin, CM Punk versus John Walters. Um, Josh Daniels versus Matt Stryker. And AJ Styles versus Jimmy Rave. And the problem with doing a tournament like this is the two biggest matches they were going to put on, CM Punk and Doug Williams and CM Punk and AJ Styles, they were not allowing themselves to advertise because they were second and third round matches, so...
2: Right. I mean, those tournaments that you're talking about, the ones that do really well, they, they, they're like big tournaments. Like what? They're like 16 people tournaments, 32 person tournament, you know, like just like giant tournaments where they can just load up with like all sorts of like big, big stars or big indie stars. And this was just like CM Punk, AJ Styles and a bunch of mid carters. And so obviously it wasn't going to have the same appeal. Um, that's probably another reason ROH never really did that. In the same way, is because ROH was booking their guys. You know, they had ongoing storylines. PWG, um, IWA Mid South. They would just bring in guys that you know weren't often in the promotion, and that was what really bolstered those tournaments. You know, when, when during the years that they were like being built up as big deals.
1: Uh, they didn't really try anything of the sort until the was a race to the top tournament. I think they did. Right, and kind even that, just, and, and that it was just everyone involved in the company. Yeah, well, that inherently you know didn't have the main eventers in it also. Yeah, and that's... And I mean, people... That's not exactly like a landmark tournament or anything like that. I think people have decent memories of it, but it's not, you know, a, a big ROH event. Right.
0: Th- they tried a couple other one-night tournaments. Like, next year, there's... The, in 2005, there's the one-night six-man tag tournament, and there's the... Best of the Super Juniors, the, which was a disaster. Did, yeah, so I, I think it, I think maybe the difference is... for With most other indies, a big tournament... Was just like an excuse to splurge and get a lot of fly-ins and get a lot of dream matches and interesting pairings that you wouldn't normally see in that in that federation. Where with Ring of Honor, the focal it usually wasn't like we're flying in a bunch of extra guys. It was more, you know, it's it's the guys you've already seen in a tournament format, and we're hoping that the tournament, just the idea of a tournament, adds. Um, adds a bit more of a draw to it, which it doesn't. I think, like, something like Battle of Los Angeles, the draw isn't, oh, it's a tur- PWG's doing a tournament. The draw is, oh, they're, like, flying in extra guys from Europe and Australia and Japan and wherever. And it's like we're getting a super deluxe PWG card.
2: And, you know, this also just really exposes how weak, you know, not in terms of, like, skill, but just, like, in Star Power, ROH's mid-card was, you know, that, you know, I mean... Matt Stryker, Chris Saban, we've, you know, I love Chris Sabin. you know, I'm higher on Matt Stryker than probably most people, but we've talked about it a million times. These guys were not fountains of charisma at this point, and they didn't come off like stars, and they didn't have interesting characters, so there was, no, there was nothing to emotionally invest in. You know, we've talked about it a million times, yeah. and they needed to be freshened up badly, and I think this, the, that, that aspect of the show kind of
0: showed that off. And that, that brings us to the second match in the first round of the Pure Wrestling title tournament. Doug Williams defeats Chris Sabin via pinfall in 8 minutes, 18 seconds with the Chaos Theory German Suplex. Joe, what did you think? Not a long match, but still, you know, Doug Williams, we don't get him often in Ring of Honor, so a treat there whenever you get to see him.
1: Indeed, yeah, Doug uh, coming out to uh, Song 2 by Blur, the, uh, the Woohoo song. So some great theme songs on this uh, DVD. It really took me back. This one was a little. I wish it had gone a little, bit longer. Had a little more meat to the bones, but it's always a joy to see Doug Williams wrestle. His style. He's so good. He's so in a you know refreshing in an environment like this. I think Chris Saban is almost comical, like how <laughs> under pushed he is in, in uh, ROH compared to TNA at the time. But they, you know, that's a good back and forth match. I thought um, you know Williams worked over the neck that played into the finish a bit, which I appreciated a bit. And uh, Williams won. It was. Perfectly fine. I I like the opener a bit better than this, but this was uh, you know a solid, if unspectacular, routing.
0: Yeah, this was not... I didn't find it as good as the opener. I mean, it's hard. An eight-minute match is only going to be allowed to be so good, but I enjoyed this because I'll, most of this match was um, Doug Williams just doing his thing on offense, and actually, that, to me, was the story of the match where usually in indie wrestling tournaments, it's it, not always, but often... Whoever, you can almost tell who's going to lose just as you watch the match because the tendency is if someone's going out in the first round, you give them a lot of the match because they're not going to get a second chance to show the crowd what they can do, and the other guy is. And this match flips the script on that because of this eight-minute match, I would say Doug Williams dominates maybe the first six minutes, and it's only in the final couple minutes where Chris Saban finally gets one big sustained burst of big offense, and he he does things like... um you know, he hits the cradle shock and things like that. But for the most part, I was shocked by just how much, you know, Chris Saban comes all this way to do this show. He gets eight minutes and really he only get, he, he's only on offense. I would say for about two minutes tonight, but I thought he did by the end, get just enough where it didn't feel like a complete squash. And I thought Doug Williams looked great. If there is one problem I have to this, it's one of my um, problems with tournaments sometimes in general, which is, you because guys have to um, reserve some something, some uh, keep some gas in the tank for multiple matches, it feels like we probably would have gotten a better Doug Williams versus Chris Saban match or a better Doug Williams CM Punk match. Not that that match was by any means bad either, but the fact is, both of them feel like, you know, he's splitting his energy among two matches, and it probably would have been more fun to see what he could have done if he just could have devoted his, himself going, this is my one match for the night. But again, that's a problem just of tournaments, one-night tournaments in general. Matt, what did you think?
2: Well, like both of you said, I um, I was very happy to see Doug Williams. I always love him. Um, his offense was awesome. Um, though, But there was actually something I disliked about this match, which was, it felt like two separate matches. Like, Doug dominated for so long that I thought that Saban's comeback felt implausible. Like, you know, it just like there wasn't like some trick that he had. He just came back. He just all of a sudden, he stopped Doug Williams in a move and was on offense and was on very, you know, like, like, you know, for that final stretch, uh, extended period of offense. And I thought like the tone, it was just too dramatic a shift for me. Um, But the offense itself was good. So I thought this match was fine. But that you know, made me not get into it as much as I might have otherwise gotten into it.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. Like, I would have, that's one of those matches where I I bet you neither guy even really remembers much about that match. Yeah. But I would just love, because it's such a different structure for what you would expect from a match in that position, where Doug really eats him alive for like six minutes, just outsmarts him at every turn and really dominates the match. And then all of a sudden, like you were saying, it's almost as if they just flick a switch and all of a sudden... Saban's hitting big moves like they're in the final stretch of a match where they went back and forth for 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but still, it was fun action. There was a nice little moment where Saban got um, his neck worked on the whole match and he tries to suplex Doug Williams and he can't, so he turns it into a swinging neckbreaker out of the same position instead. So, stuff like that I thought was fun little details. But yeah, eight minutes, so you can't really fall in love with it. But it was enjoyable for what it was. Uh, immediately after the match, we get a backstage promo from Doug Williams. Doug puts over Saban and says that he underestimated him. In fact, he didn't even know he was going to wrestle him till he got to the building tonight. Uh, Doug reminds us that he's beaten Jay Briscoe and Brian Danielson in the same night before. That was at the Road to the Title first round show at uh, the first year of Ring of Honor. And he says he's wrestled 60 minutes before, so he says the pure title is made for him. A uh,
2: funny, us- funny thing about Doug Williams is that, like, you know cuz he's been there so little it's like every time Doug Williams is there they like the main thing they talk about is the road to the title they're like man he really made a star in one night with road to the title that remember that classic road to the title and i'm very interested to see like if like when he's there in like 05 and 06 and 07 if they're still mentioning road to the title i'm very curious about that
0: yeah, it's funny because he kind of occupies the space that there aren't many. I don't know if there's anyone else in Ring of Honor at this point that really has that kind of role of where he's basically like the special guest star, where you know he comes in when when he can, and so he never really has a feud. So he always is just referencing like the one or two n- most notable matches he's had, and so like you said, at this point, it's like. He's referenced that road to the title thing in the 60-minute match like five times now. Yeah. It's like every time. You know, remember that time we went to that lake and we had a, we went fishing? It was a good time. It's like he's always just referencing that one great time he, he had here. But uh, moving on, the Ring of Honor Pure Title Tournament rolls on. Third first-round match. Matt Stryker defeats Josh Daniels by submission in 8 minutes, 29 seconds, when he made him tap out to the striker Lock. And this was, this was I would say, my le- I enjoyed this match the least of the three, but I still was entertained. But I thought it was just, again, it's an eight-minute match. It's average. I think these are both two guys that maybe could use a bit more personality. But Chris Daniels especially, um, I wrote in my notes, Chris Daniels is very reminiscent of Chris Benoit in terms of stature. Josh Daniels. Well, oh, I mean, I mean yeah. God, huh. two reminiscent names, too. But, uh, yeah, in terms of stature, body type, the moves he does, um, he is also kind of missing – he is missing the charisma and emotional intensity that Chris Benoit had. But given what happened to Chris Benoit, maybe it's good that you did not have the emotional intensity of a Chris Benoit.
2: Well, it's Um, also – there's also a very strong Davy Richards vibe, which, you know, Davy Richards was often compared to Benoit at certain points in his career too.
0: Yeah, so, but you know, he's lots of hard chops in this match, lots of suplexes in this match, as you'd expect from a guy that has a pretty heavy Chris Benoit influence, and it, it's just another match where it's it, it's short and there's a good level of action, but it's nothing. It, it's it's very forgettable. Like I'm struggling to remember, like really. Specific moments here that really caught my attention, apart from it just being kind of a pleasant way to spend eight minutes. Uh, Matt, what did you think? I think I might have actually liked this more than the
2: the the in uh, and Williams match, um, not by much. Definitely, it was a charisma. It was lacking in charisma. I wrote at the beginning, like even before the match started, I wrote charisma party, but I was being <laughs> but I was being sarcastic. That's my secret. Um, so. um yeah but but it was you know all about like the strikes, but I did think that that they both seemed motivated striker you know he you know, he busted out some of his big moves, he did the run up you know suplex and it was very well timed for a two count um, you know I, I thought that um, I liked the way the ending went where he just like grabbed the striker lock real quick and it was an immediate tap out. Um, I thought it was funny when the announcers uh, or I guess it was Gabe who said. There's no doubt there will be title belts in the future of both these men. <laughs> Definitely not in ROH. There wasn't. Um, yeah, just not here. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know what titles Josh Daniels held. I imagine there are a lot of indies. I imagine he held some. Um, but yeah, I thought it was good energy. Like it was short, but I thought they had what I put, what I would put as interesting chemistry. Like they could have had a really good match in another setting um, with maybe different kinds of stakes to it i don't know but for a short match i thought they were they did a pretty good job it wasn't long enough for their lack of personality to really take that much away i guess that's
0: what i would say yeah joe what did you think about this match between two surefire future champions
1: i like when they mentioned josh daniels being in the tournament they referenced his win over steve carino and i was like uh Homicide ran in and mugged Steve Carino during that match. And Carino even referenced it later on. What a joke it was. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe just say like, Oh, you know, he's a lot of the talent in the back speaks highly of him. That's why he's here. Uh, this didn't do a lot for me. I mean, it was fine, but it was just kind of, you know, they just wrestled for a bit. And, uh, I know, uh, Rob Viper on Twitter posted three vomit emojis when I referenced this match. <laughs> I would only give it two. I would not be that harsh, but, uh, no, it was fine. The, the point was to kind of get the striker lock over as this, uh, you know this a move that can get a tap out immediately, which it, it didn't really play into anything. So it, it was, a little bit later on, but not not quite to a uh, to that level. But uh, this was fine.
0: It was funny to me where uh, Gabe, in putting it over, he kind of had an awkward choice of words because this is he says I can't when Josh Daniels t- taps out to the striker lock. He says I can't believe he tapped that quick, and that sound. I, I clearly I think Gabe is trying to put over like. How deadly the striker lock can be, but the way he phrased it kind of sounded like, I can't believe Josh Daniels is such a pussy. Like, I can't believe he talked <laughs> out. Like, I was like, that, that's, it's not coming out the way you think it is, Gabe. And the other little bit of uh, Gabe commentary I enjoyed here was, he puts over that Matt Stryker is reaping the rewards of winning the Field of Honor tournament. He says by getting put in tournaments like this and a number one contender matches, that's signed. These are the rewards he's getting by winning that tournament. Leaving out the fact that other people in this tournament are were also in the Field of Honor and lost and are also getting those same benefits. And uh, I think Gabe also says on commentary... He says something like, Stryker was started in Ring of Honor 14 months ago, and he was in the opening match, and he's been climbing the ladder ever since. <laughs> i he was in Matt Stryker was in the opening match two shows ago, the show after he won the Field of Honor tournament. And
2: so, and he didn't even get to be the first seed, or the second seed, in this tournament. Y-
0: yeah, so... Uh, like, I you mean, think
2: he'd give like him like, the number one seed
0: just like, to pretend the Field of Honor mattered? it's just so yeah it's one of those it's something we were talking about the last show or two matt where it's like clearly gabe wants to put over the importance of the wins he's been giving matt striker but he's not following through because rightfully so he realizes matt striker isn't going to work at the top of the card but he's still trying to act like you know the Field of Honor tournament, all these things. He's trying to act like Matt Starker is marching up the card when really he's basically in the same position he was probably six months ago. Exactly.
2: Also, I will say this about this this match. Uh, Any other ROH show, this match probably plays to mostly silence, but the crowd was pretty hot for it, which just goes to show what a good crowd this was.
0: Yeah, again, really good crowd this night. Joe, you and your, your all your random unknown New York bus friends, outdid (laughs) yourself. So
2: yeah, well, you certainly made up for that that terrible crowd at
0: the last show. (laughs) Um, After the match, we get a backstage Matt Stryker promo. He says he's never been hit harder in his life than Josh than Josh (laughs) (laughs) Matt.
2: Josh Josh Daniels, Daniels, come on. Poor guy.
1: (laughs) Josh Matthews, noted heavy hitter.
0: (laughs) I literally wrote my notes, Josh Matthews, like, look, if you think that I'm going to remember Josh Daniels more than I have to, you got another thing coming, my friend. Well,
2: apparently I don't think that, uh, so
0: he thinks if there's another field of honor tournament, Josh Daniels could be the future winner. I, I almost like went, ah, when I watched this, like, it's cute that you think that's possible. And in, in a, on a variety of levels, uh, striker says he's going to be the pure champion and be known as the man who put pure wrestling back on the map. I just wrote in all capitals in my notes. What is pure wrestling? Question mark, exclamation mark. Like this is something that we're, I guess we can talk about later, but Gabe continues to hype up during the show over and over again that pure wrestling is not technical wrestling. It just means compu- competition at its purest. We'll explore this later. I got some quotes from Gabe, interviews with the media. I'll just say it's. I, I don't think you get an answer by the end of the show. And that spoilers, brings- you never get an answer. <laughs> it's a long-term story, right? um, still ongoing. The final- to the final first round match in the pure title tournament aj styles defeats jimmy ray via pinfall in seven minutes 35 seconds with a discus lariat this was the one first round match that really kind of had some uh, a prior issue between these two guys the two guys that were wrestling because we had seen for months as aj had been basically jimmy rave's mentor kind of a hard ass on him and just pushing him and berating him until Jimmy finally kind of snapped on a recent show and was like, you know, come on, asshole, quit being a jerk to me. And, in fact, the Ring of Honor website at the time building up this match says, AJ Styles requested that Ring of Honor officials give him Jimmy Rave as a first-round opponent in the tournament. Ring of Honor officials have granted that request. Styles, considered the favorite to win it all, has stated that he's going to teach Rave some lessons and give him a beating... I thought it was kind of interesting, too, that the Ring of Honor website, in that quote, said AJ was the favorite and then booked him to win. That's usually not what a company would do, so it's kind of interesting they kind of hid the result in plain sight there. Um, Matt, what did you think about this as a wrestling match?
2: It's interesting, because in some ways this was my least favorite match of the first round. I thought there was some sloppiness and, like, I don't know, like a... I would not say lack of chemistry because obviously these guys had some chemistry, but there was just something off about some of it. But on the other hand, I thought it, it accomplished a lot storyline-wise. You know, they were building up for a long time. Rave meeting that killer instinct. You know, so so he was like kept trying to fire rave up, and rave you know did some big moves and stuff. Um, but he kept getting his offense cut off until you know AJ. Um, you know, AJ hurt his knee. Right, because uh, and uh, and then AJ was like, the ref was checking on him, and then Rave backed off, and AJ told him to attack the knee, so Rave attacked it, and I thought that was like a good culminating storyline of you know trying to get Rave that killer instinct, um, and leading to uh, AJ winning with the discus lariat, um, and you know and after the match he was like, don't apologize, you know this is good, so I thought. I thought, like, the story ideas was good. It wasn't quite long enough to develop it too much, but it also played into, you know, a, a show long storyline involving AJ's knee or his leg. Um, so, I don't know. Um, my opinions on the match are kind of mixed. I thought they did some stuff well. I thought some stuff didn't go so well. So, my feelings of the match was, I guess,
0: on the Trevor scale, average? See, I actually... I thought this was above average. I, um... This might have been my favorite of the three short matches in the first round. I wouldn't put it above, uh, Dan, uh, not Josh Daniels. Now Josh Daniels (laughs) is popping into my head. No, um, I wouldn't put it above CM Punk and John Walters, but it was limited by how short it was. This was the shortest match of the first round, but I felt like see, um, EJ styles and, uh, Jimmy Rave had some fairly good chemistry together, and obviously they'd worked together before in places like NWA Wildside. There was, at times, a little bit of of roughness, but I also just feel like AJ has, especially tonight, he has some real snap and real crispness, and a lot of weight to his offense, even some of his acrobatic stuff, and I feel like Jimmy Rave is, at this point, just such a handsome, literal baby-faced young man that it really, like, it just, it gels well together to see, like, hard-ass AJ Styles kind of hitting little Jimmy Rave hard. Um, the one thing one thing I didn't like about it, well, didn't like about Jimmy Rave's performance, is I felt like this is a match where I really noticed that Jimmy Rave, at this point in his career, really needed to work on his, like, emoting, because AJ Styles is bringing, like, a lot of emotion, like you were saying, Matt, you know, challenging Rave and being like, come on, hit my injuries. Really kind of got wrestling this like he has a chip on his shoulder, And if you look at Jimmy Ray's facial expressions, he's really not bringing much to the table in a match where he really should be, like, pushing right back against that. And I guess the one other thing I didn't like, other than the short length, was um, AJ does hurt his knee, which will become a show-long storyline, but he hurts it doing just a move that he does all the time, which is the the kind of the springboard, you know, off-the-ropes moonsault into where he lands in a reverse DDT position on his opponent. And I felt like since AJ was going to have his knee hurt for this tournament, why not have Jimmy Rave actually be the guy that hurts it to at least give Jimmy Rave something? And instead the fact that like AJ got hurt through no fault of Jimmy Rave, like it was literally just a move AJ normally did gone wrong. I felt like, come on, you could have let jimmy be the guy that hurt it somehow through a move but
2: well, I'll, let me i'll defend that one actually um because i think the idea is will rave take advantage of an opportunity you know uh, you know even if that wasn't his goal and i think that was the thing that aj was trying to bring out like hey like you have this chance here like there's a weakness use it you know what i mean
0: yeah i mean i can see your point too it's a I, I kind of, maybe I'm just defensive because I feel like Jimmy Rave has been given so little from Ring of Honor at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. Like even, even this match, it's the one match that actually has a story behind it and it gets the least amount of time of anything, which I felt was kind of like part for the course for Jimmy at this point in his Ring of Honor career. But no, you're right. They are, they were definitely going in a story. The other thing I mentioned before I'll throw it before I throw it to you, Joe, is I think the Pro Wrestling Torch maybe got it wrong here because there's a quote from the Pro Wrestling Torch when they covered the show that said, AJ Styles also came out of this event with a pain in his knee, and I feel like that's suggesting they thought this was a real legit injury. Maybe it was, but I really, considering how much attention was paid to it throughout the show, I really have a hard time believing this was a legit injury.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: me too. (laughs) No, it's such a common trope in tournaments, like, oh, someone's suffered an injury or took a bad beating and has to keep coming back. I can't imagine.
0: Yeah, and the whole tournament was kind of built around that story, but uh, Joe, what did you think about the match? Where are you on the Matt-to-Trevor sliding scale?
1: I'm uh, I'm closer to Trevor. I like this a lot. Uh, I like when they said Rave was a 500-to-1 underdog, and I was like, god damn, (laughs) I I put 10 bucks on that. Like, Buster (laughs) Douglas was like 42-to-1, so... (laughs) But uh, he did lose in the end, so I guess Vegas had that right. Uh, I like AJ's offense was very crisp. But a lot of big uh, offensive moves in this. I like the I like the storyline and Rave taking advantage of it. And I really like the fact that AJ just kind of hit this kill shot, not quite out of nowhere, but he didn't. You know, he was in trouble and he managed to win by hitting this one big clothesline. I appreciated that, and I did like in the promo afterwards after Rave apologizes fifty times. And he tells him, don't apologize. And then Rave apologizes again immediately. I'm like, dummy, he just told you not to apologize. He was apologizing for apologizing.
0: This is a move that I've done many times. Trevor, you're Canadian, you know it. Yeah, I, I, yeah definitely. I mean, I, 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 I always lust after the famed triple apology where mm-hmm. I apologize for apologizing too much, which is a, a thing I have literally done in relationships with people.
2: Oh my God, me too. Come on.
0: <laughs> We're very so- similar yes
2: um i was i uh, the other thing i was going to note about the match is this crowd really hated jimmy rave and he even gotten the um the die 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 treatment from the guy who did the same thing to cm punk at uh, main event spectacles only it wasn't in jimmy's face this time but i saw him like in the corner of the screen just like
0: die 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 at jimmy rave (laughs) he really earned that poor jimmy odds makers don't love him Gabe doesn't love him at this point. Well, oh, but J- Jimmy will get his time to shine. Yeah, I mean, it, down the road. It, it it
2: allowed him to have a explanation for his heel turn. It was a very like Rocky Maivia
0: situation. Yeah, exactly. He's that right now. He's building all the legit justification he needs to to turn on everybody. Yep. So. Um, as Joe top mentioned, and I think Matt mentioned too, after the match, we get a, a segment where AJ keeps selling his knee in the ring. Gabe wonders what will happen when he faces Matt striker, especially since Stryker just submitted Josh Daniels with the striker lock that works on the leg. Uh, Doug calls this match a moral victory for rave, even though he lost to set in seven minutes and didn't even hurt AJ's knee himself. Uh, the camera falls AJ and rave as they make their way back to the curtain. Rave apologizes, as was already mentioned. Um, AJ tells him not to apologize. Blah, blah, blah. He'd do the same thing. And yeah, so that's the end of that little... that The AJ and Jimmy Rave storyline will continue down the road. But we go back in front of the crowd where the team of Scott Clark and Jerk Jackson make their way to the ring. Jerk Jackson, better known to probably most people listening to this as Bobby Fish, making his, I believe, his Ring of Honor on-screen debut. He was beefy yes
1: yeah he's trimmed down a lot
0: yeah looked very different to me yep you know um so they made their way to the ring followed by their opponents dunn and marcos the ring crew express uh dunn and marcos high-fived the ref as well as doug who's shooting video video at ringside which i always laugh at um Before they wrestle, the outcast killers come to the ring. Oman Tortuga gets on the mic and he calls the crowd losers. He criticizes all the fans for being there on Valentine's Day to stare at guys. Um, Except for the women who he says were dragged there by said guys. And he says the women can join the girls that are already waiting in his hotel room, which he believes for waiting for something which I believe he called Saint Happy Oman's Day which was one of the worst St. Valentine's Day puns <laughs> I have ever heard.
2: I also I also love any any promo where the shtick is, if you were really cool, you would not be watching this.
1: Yeah, yeah see, it's, it's like, we came to watch wrestling. That's what you do. That's yeah. your job. Like, well, yeah. it's, Gabe's it's, it's always a baffling logic, but I don't know. Yeah, like poor Gabe's
0: always selling this as like, you know, you have to experience this live. This is the hippest product ever. And then out comes the guy, like, why are all you losers here on Valentine's Day? Like, like all these women don't want to be here. It's like going. I mean, I realize he's being a heel, but it's the exact opposite message they're normally trying to sell. And um, Oman turns his attention to Donna Marcos, and I, I like at this point during or uh, Oman's promo, the camera basically shows in the background that Clark and Jackson have basically given up on a match and are walking to the back. Like they're just like. Ugh. We're probably not going to wrestle tonight. Like, we just give <laughs> up.
2: I actually find this—I find this the most noteworthy thing about this whole segment. Like, why didn't they let the Ringo Express just have a squash? Like, why did they have to do this instead? Why not do both?
0: And I—I I don't know, like. This is, a, this is, like, a common thing for Ring of Honor, but the idea that these guys, they were probably just in the area or helping out, but that this was their entire role on the show. Tonight, <laughs> was to come out and be, like, a false tease, and then to basically, like, they don't even attacked or, like, the, the Outcast Killers haven't even attacked Diamond and Marcos yet. They're just like, oh, this promo's going on too. I, just, I guess we'll go home. <laughs> yeah,
1: they were just mean. You know, <laughs> that's why they left.
0: <laughs> so, uh... Oman says the Killers are bigger, better wrestlers, and better looking than Dun & Marcos. Dun & Marcos get a big chant. Marcos grabs the mic, says they're not going to take it anymore, blah, blah, blah. The Killers attack. They lay out Dun & Marcos. The bell is rung, so I guess this is a a weirdly official match. The Ring Crew Express make a big comeback as We're Not Going to Take It plays over the PA. Killers retreat. Don gets back on the mic, says this is another sellout on the We're Not Going to Take It World Tour. And wasn't much of a segment, but as always, the crowd loves Dun and Marcos as they should.
2: Yeah, I do agree the out- that the Outcast Killers are better looking than Dun and Marcos, but that's as far as my agreement goes. <laughs>
0: Oh, I don't know. Daniel are pretty. They're maybe they're not as handsome, but they're cuter. I would say, Matt, they're cuter. John, right. what do you think about their looks?
1: Fair enough. Oh boy. Oh, well, let's uh, rank the hunks of uh, Ring of Honor.
2: <laughs> if, if anyone's ranking the hunks of Ring of Honor, I'm guessing neither of these teams even make it into the conversation. <laughs> oh, they would
1: not make the uh, the top five. Um, no, whatever. Uh, I'm kind of this. I'm kind of stunned. This wasn't a post intermission segment. I I kind of have a feeling the show got shuffled around. I've never heard anything to the contrary. But I have a theory as to why that is I'll get into in a a little bit with another match. uh,
0: Not to jump on you, but my only guess would be if you look at the way the tournament is structured, after the second round, we get two non-tournament matches as a buffer for the finals. So I can only assume here we only get one match as a buffer between the first and second round. So maybe they thought, we just need one more segment just to give the guys a little bit more time to rest. Uh-uh. I don't know that. That's that's a very flimsy reason. I just pulled out of thin air, but that's the only thing I can think of for structuring the show like this. But
2: I'll save my I'll save my uh, thoughts until I, after I hear Joe's theory that he's making us wait for.
0: Okay, <laughs> we are definitely building this up too much. Yeah. But uh, next we join uh, Jim Cornette sitting somewhere in Louisville. Uh, Cornette says since the Briscoes are doing so well now, he can just sit in Louisville and make phone calls to advise the Briscoes. Jim says he'll be around just enough to guide the Briscoes to the top. Uh, He says he wouldn't give the backseat boys five to one odds that they'll even show up tonight. So this ring of honor show, very concerned with odds so far. Um, Cornette turns his attention to Samoa Joe, or as he just calls him, Samoa. And he makes a couple more hacky comments about him being a Samoan savage before he reveals that due to his negotiations, the upcoming Jay Briscoe Samoa Joe cage match on a future show can end not just by pinfall or submission, but escaping the cage as well. So I guess like the implication is that gives Jay a big advantage because Joe is so, you know, heavy, it's going to be harder for him to climb a cage. So just a little bit of housekeeping to set up the next show.
2: Yeah, I thought you know, besides the uh, you know the racist tropes, I thought it was a perfectly good promo. It, it got its point across, and I think it's a good point to get across. So all good, yeah, except for the, except for the racism. That part's bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we say that a lot on yep. these shows. Except for the sexism or racism, not yep. bad. Yep. Um, and that brings us to the country
1: whipping six man. Oh no, nope, tag- I got to correct you. An old fashioned country whipping match per the graphic.
0: The old-fashioned not one of these new-fangled country whip no they have
1: If you have uh, microchips in the straps to tell you how hard you hit, that's a new-fangled <laughs> one. but uh, this was be... old-fashioned it said.:
2: So quick, I-, I know none of us are like necessarily Memphis connoisseurs, but name for me another country whip match.
0: I can't. Uh, I mean, stra—that's that, the thing I thought was really interesting about this. Where I've seen a lot of strap matches, I can't remember a country whipping match.
2: I mean, maybe like all the like the Memphis like in Southern wrestling aficionados will make think that we're idiots for not being able yeah. to name any, but I can't name any.
0: And Joe, I was definitely going to say them i i believe AE, AEW is going to put the microchip in the microchip in the uh strap for matches because the, that's the kind of stat tracking Tony Khan's so, <laughs> like, so. the, <laughs> like the like ama- the like the
2: amounts of whips each each strap is responsible for
0: yeah like percentage of welts in relation to percentage of of strap strikes thrown like you know HC Loke has got an eighty seven percent wealth ratio. This is this is off the charts, huh? Excalibur. I, I I can't believe it. Um so anyway, in this country old fashioned country whipping match, the special K of Dixie, Hydro, and Izzy defeated the Carnage crew of DeVito, Just Credible, and Loke in eight minutes, forty six seconds, when Izzy pinned Loke after Hydro spike pile drove him through a table on the outside. Uh Joe definitely something completely different on the show there was no other match like this what did you think about it
1: uh, far more of a spectacle than an actual match and i'm glad you mentioned who specifically was in the match because <laughs> it was just like pretty much all of special k versus the uh the carnage crew uh just kind of nonstop, you know carnage as they say tons of blood like i think dixie in particular was just a complete mess a lot of uh a lot of uh just a lot of whipping a lot of old-fashioned country weapons, <laughs> and uh, at the end, uh, this is somewhat funny. That uh, I guess DeVito's daughter appeared with uh, one member of Special K, causing uh, was it was a DeVito and Just Incredible to uh, to run off. When I saw this live, I had I had no view of the entranceway, <laughs> so I had no idea what was happening. Like to me, DeVito and <laughs> Incredible just ran away. For some <laughs> I was like, "That's that's very odd," and uh, and they got the win. But um, yeah, the the whole. It's it's so funny the the whole daughter thing because I mean clearly Special K and the Carnage crew are characters that would naturally be at odds with each other so I don't know why you would have to introduce this element to it it's not something I think a lot of people in the crowd could relate to like their their teenage daughter you know, <laughs> falling in with ravers
2: yeah we all we've all we've all
1: experienced it we've all been there
2: <laughs>
0: Actually, but, yeah I, I should bring up uh, I I guess we should have I should have elaborated on this when I talked about just the result of the match but. The finish of the match is is actually really. First, it's the current crew have Special K right where they want them. They're going to do the big spike pile driver, and then uh, Angel Dust shows up at the entrance with a girl that we prese- that they end up basically telling you later it's a uh, Loke's daughter, and just incredible. And um, Devito just immediately drop everything and run away and leave poor Loke to get. 800 on one attacked by all of Special K and loses the match. But going to what you said about the the raving stuff, this is maybe my line of the night on commentary. Gabe says when he see when the whole angle happens with the daughter, DeVito's daughter has joined the raving lifestyle, and I just thought that's like the most fatherly. Like I don't I don't think <laughs> Gabe was even a father yet, but that's like goddamn kids joining the <laughs> raving lifestyle like, it's, it's the most act, like hack it was just so funny and adorable
2: also was- also like another line that I thought was great was they were just like who is that girl and I'm just like
1: yeah fucking figure it out geniuses like what who <laughs> 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 oh, my favorite line in the match was when they said oh Dixie he'll probably use his parents health insurance yeah, oh.
2: yeah. I love that too so good yeah see Trevor's Canadian so he doesn't get yeah, that like
1: understand our yeah I
0: actually wrote Pretty that down I, I hadn't got to that but yeah like only in ring of only in america yeah. is you need using your parents health insurance to like get needed medical treatment a heel move yes it's so good this is see we should be
2: showing Alexandria Casio Cortez this match <laughs> yeah this match so she knows what needs to change in the world of wrestling
0: it's like you know this, this these spoiled trust fund kids. They use their parents' health insurance to get stitches. Like it's just, it's just like the most ridiculous. And, and uh, also, that,
2: when I was that, when I was the age that uh, Izzy was here, which is probably like what, like twenty, twenty one. I was also still on my parents' health insurance. It's pretty much the norm. <laughs> yeah, <that's
1: laughs> not, I was too. This is not a, a shocking turn of events. Yeah. This is not some uh, abuse of opulence or anything. Like no. that.
0: I mean, when, when Obama, not to get too political, but when Obama, was no, do it, do it. when Obama was promoting Obamacare, one of his big selling points was like, look, if you're a kid, you can keep your parents' health insurance till like, your mid-20s. Like, that was, like, the thing that he knew would test well with crowds. Like, yeah. Like, not a heel thing. Yeah, because
2: no. before Obamacare, we had to get off when you were, like, 22, 23, and then they changed it to 26 with Obamacare.
0: Yeah, I mean, people like health insurance. They also like not having to get their own health insurance, so... Very baby it would be a baby face move if, if if they could if if someone just came out with like everyone in the crowd gets to keep their parents health insurance they'd be like the big, biggest baby face of the night in a wrestling company
2: Trevor, <laughs> Trevor stop trying yeah. to desto- yeah. stop trying to destroy my freedom. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, I'm just going to ask you, what did you think about this as a match, and not as a very hilarious political statement?
2: Uh, I liked it much more as the latter. Um, yeah, it was a spectacle. It was like it was mostly an angle. I guess that's what I would say. It was re- it was barely a match. Like it was, there's just like a lot of chaos, a lot of whipping, old-fashioned country whipping, like uh, like Joe said. Um, uh, there was a lot of bleeding. Uh, basically, I'm just going to repeat everything Joe said, because there's really nothing more to say. I, 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 the angle is extra weird to me, because didn't they establish early on that DeVito's daughter is supposed to be, like, 12? Yep. <laughs> so, like, shouldn't yep. there be, like, all kinds of police out there, like, trying to, like, stop all these guys from, like, m- like kidnapping this 12-year-old girl? Uh, and... Um, yeah, I just I thought it was so funny they were like that that girl she couldn't be no it couldn't be and it's like obviously it is like that's exactly who it is who else would it be why else would Devito run, like do you think Devito and Christian are like we like that girl too come back here like it <laughs> does, doesn't make any sense like that's like so uh, yeah but I guess if you're trying to get heat and build to a big um, blow off match at the next show I guess. Even though it's really funny, it's probably not a bad angle. If I'm being honest, uh, I, I like. I think it's like just the concept is stupid, but it was probably not so badly done. I don't. I know. I mean,
0: I give credit to Gabe. Like, they are trying to give these two teams like a reason to feud that's personal. That's more than just so and so doesn't like ravers. Like, they're actually trying to give the Carnage Crew like something to sink their teeth into, like a real personal reason. Yeah, but the implications of some of the things they've suggested we can go into it i think a bit more later when we talk about a special k promo like it's kind of especially in light of what's about to go down in ring of honor it's definitely eyebrow raising
2: um, well, also, like, the- how do you ever take these characters seriously, like the heels, ever again, when you're basically saying that Angel Dust is a child molester, and all of the other, <laughs> and all of the other uh, Special K members are aiding and abetting child molestation, and then when you add in the layer of the whole Feinstein scandal on top of that, it just becomes that much creepier. I, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's just too much.
1: Uh, I was gonna say I thought Angel Dust had the easy night, but uh, not getting old-fashioned country whipped and all but i guess with the stigma he now has upon him maybe he drew the short straw
2: yeah and then the other thing is um when they put um when they pile drove loke through the table gabe was like this is what the carnage crew did to becky in boston and then i'm just thinking like yeah and you loved it when they did that to becky and now this is like a fully grown man who's like a tough guy brawler getting it done to him and you're much more appalled now
0: I, I thought that was more maybe just Gabe. like Gabe loves, and I, I appreciate this, he likes to point out when like his booking is referencing his older booking. Yeah. like It's the same with the fact this is a country whipping match. It's because Special K strapped um, the Carnage crew during a segment a few shows ago. So even though you would think Special K doesn't seem like a strap match kind of group of wrestlers, you know, they did try again when G- Gabe at his best, he tries to dot his eye so everything does have a bit more of a reason for it to exist yeah um as a match at first the first few minutes i kind of got flashbacks to some of the early ring of honor hardcore matches i really didn't like where it's just 800 people brawling at ringside uh, 100 people are bleeding about a minute in and you don't know why and the camera is having this trouble keeping up with the action and it's kind of plodding but then once it got in the ring and it got more move-oriented and it just became more about the uh, Special K taking crazy bumps, I thought it got more enjoyable up to like something where it's not something I'd ever want to watch again, but I did not dislike it like I was worried I was going to after the first minute or two. There were a couple brutal moments in this match. Um, Izzy takes a really brutal Loke chair shot right to the head. Um, Angel Dust takes a swing neckbreaker on an open chair, And then, actually, ironically, Loke might have taken the worst bump because Izzy overshoots a Phoenix Splash and it looks like he catches Loke right in the face with his foot. The ref, like, has a conversation with Loke right after. It looked like something I would not want to, uh, I would not want to take it like that. And, I guess the other thing to mention is, Dixie, of all the guys who bled in this match, and there were a bunch of them, Dixie had a really bad cut. Not quite Dustin Rhodes at double or nothing, but very bad. And I like this little note from the Pro Wrestling Torch they, when they were writing about the show. They wrote, Special K member Dixie suffered a deep cut on his forehead, which was super glued shut rather than having stitches. And then Wade wrote in parentheses, which is a common and relatively safe practice used to close cuts. So, I, I like that Wade was like trying to teach us a little bit about, um... Also, I just like the words relatively safe practice. So... I thought that was amusing. And he would not be the only person having to deal with a brutal cut tonight.
1: Mm. So I just want to add, a just incredible, Mr. Tombstone. They did a quick camera cut, but he missed about like a good foot. Like The guy's head didn't come anywhere near Oof. the canvas, which uh, I still remember just seeing that spot. And not, not that I want guys dunked on their noggins, but he's been doing that move for quite a while. You'd, you'd think he'd have it down by then. but
2: and it is he's not used to, He's not used to doing it on guys quite so short.
0: <laughs> mm. Um... After the mu- uh, after the match, a bunch of refs, and for some reason, Dunn and Marcos rushing to check on too. Loke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, but you
2: know why? It's because they're all, like, part of the ring crew, and it's, like, oh, it's yeah, that ring crew I, solidarity. Because yeah. isn't Lok like, the leader of the ring crew? Isn't that what Shane Hagerdorn has said? I, I think
0: so, and also, I think he was basically, like, an unofficial, like, agent, backstage agent, even, for the company at this point, so... Yeah. um. We cut to Special K celebrating backstage. I believe this is what I was talking about before. Uh, a bloody Dixie is fake laughing up a storm. Everyone's celebrating. Dixie says that's another member of Special K. I think he was saying Angel Dust I couldn't quite make it out is taking care of another Davido unquote. And this is what what when I was noting in my notes what Matt was mentioned a little minutes ago, that in another promo, I actually went back in my notes for that show and checked just to confirm, DeVito said that his daughter at Final Battle 2003 was 13 years old. Oy. And now Special K is joking about Angel Dust having sex with her. And it's been like three months later. So, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. A- LOL, I thought that promo said 18. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, like, it's it's crazy that, like, no one even acts like like this is anything at all like it's just offhanded like yeah he's he's getting devito's daughter and yeah he's he's corrupting her by bringing her to raves
2: not that he's like committing horrible assault and rape against her like that's seems like yeah i don't know they're 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 not they're not you know shockingly they're not sensitive with these issues i know it's weird but it's shockingly true
0: Um, we then joined Gary Michael Capetta in the ring. He's really not dressed up for the second anniversary show at all. He's just wearing his usual Mm -hmm. sweater. He's, he's not wearing a suit like Samoa Joe style, but I still love you, Gary. And, uh, Capetta says, You know me as the guy who tries to get scoops. And this made me laugh so hard. One single fan, upon hearing this in the crowd, excitedly screams, SCOOPS! at the
2: top of his <laughs> line. One fan,
0: super excited about SCOOPS.
2: Um, I, think he, he was, I think he was hoping that Al Isaacs was going to come out.
0: <laughs> Yo, was going to join the NWO of Scoops.com. The Heart the, uh, Foundation. The Heart
1: Foundation he was going to join. I'll have oh, yeah, know.
0: the Heart Foundation.
1: Which we heard about every day for like (laughs) a
0: year. Gary wants to know where Homicide is, and he calls out Julius Smokes for answers, describing Smokes as one of his favorite guys, continuing the great run of Gary Michael Capetta, Julius Smokes' buddy comedy. Um, There's a surprisingly big reaction for Julius Smokes to come out for an interview and you can hear Doug saying, like, laughing a couple times behind the camera as he videotapes Smoke's gyrations. And I love any time you can hear Doug, like, behind the hard camera not being able to stifle laughter at something.
2: This also, um, this, this confirms something that I thought a long time ago. That song that he came out to was, like, in the background of one ROH DVD a long time ago. It might have been Night of the Butcher. And I was like, I think that's Julius Smoke singing. So the fact that he came out to this music now confirms for me that it was. So I'm happy that that is, uh... I'm happy that that is confirmed.
0: Huh. That's interesting. I did not notice that. Um Smokes gets on the mic and he sings, but he's so loud it blows out the sound system and I can't make out the lyrics to what he's singing. Uh, Smokes says... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the things. <laughs> Smokes then says he doesn't know where Homicide is. Uh Homicide won't even return his phone calls. And then he says something I can't make out that Doug laughs at. Uh Smokes reminds us that Homicide has beaten BJ Whitmer, Samoa Joe, and CM Punk, and he begs Homicide to call him. Uh, Smokes switches gears then. He says the Rottweilers have a new member, but he can't tell us yet. But then he Uh, will tell you later. Yeah, so Smokes is just one of a kind.
2: I, I'm, gla- I'm glad that everyone is acting as confused by that homicide promo at the end as we were. Although at the time it seemed like Smokes was not confused at all and was fully on board with what Homicide was saying, but now they're acting like Smokes is kept in the dark too.
0: Um, Mike Johnson, for for whatever this is worth, wrote in the PW Insider at the time that Homicide that he believes Homicide had a personal commitment today, which is why he missed the show. So. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say what the personal commitment would be, but something very important if you listen to that last homicide promo, because he doesn't know when he's coming back, but he's coming back. He's coming back soon. He's right behind you. (laughs) Um, We go to the semifinals in the Ring of Honor Pure Title Tournament. The first semifinal match, CM Punk defeats Doug Williams via pinfall in 10 minutes, 44 seconds. When he was able to raise his shoulder during a double pin situation, what happens is Doug Williams hits CM Punk with a Chaos Theory German suplex, the second actually of the match, and his knee was injured earlier, his knee gives out, so his shoulders slump, state of the mat, Punk raises his at the last second, so Punk gets the win, even though he takes the move, Matt, pretty, you know, big first time match, at least for Ring of Honor, CM Punk versus Doug Williams, we only got ten minutes, what did you think?
2: I loved the first five minutes, and I wasn't as into the uh, the second half. I just thought i don't know, just thought it felt off, but the early part of the match I love like my favorite part of the whole match was the beginning um where Williams basically starts the match. Like, the bell rings, and Williams just runs at Punk, jumps on him, and, like, clamps on him with his, like, legs on this, like, torso vice. And I've never seen a match start that way. And it's the best opening to a match ever. And if I was ever a wrestler, I would start, like, at least, at least 10% of my matches that way. Um, but, uh, you know, I like... Like, there were some really cute spots early. Like, all the stuff relating to... Um, to um, Williams's offense... I thought was great like Williams does this thing where he's in a headlock and he does this reversal where he like uses his legs to push out into his own headlock and then Punk tried to do the same thing but like Williams but then uh, um, but he failed at it and I thought it was like oh so Williams like is the master of this and Punk doesn't know how to do it right like I really like that sort of stuff um, I thought Punk looked really athletic here which is not something I normally say about him um, but I don't know, there was just, it kind of just slowed down after a while, like Punk selling, um, wasn't, didn't go on for very long, he worked over Williams' knee after Williams missed the knee drop, um, and then, uh, the chaos, you know, they did the chaos theory, but Williams' knee gave out on the bridge, and then Punk lifted his shoulder, which, I'm never a big fan of those finishes, I thought this was overall a good match, but it was really the first part of the match that really captured my interest,
0: I thought this was a good match too, but it goes back to what I said during the first Doug Doug Williams match on the show, which is, I feel like if CM Punk and Doug Williams were wrestling each other and they just had like 20 minutes and didn't have to worry about wrestling before or after this, we would have gotten a significantly better match. But what we got, I think, was still good. And I agree, like Doug Williams, it's just so fun when he kind of plays... Almost like sometimes what Zack Saber Junior does, not in this, not he doesn't do all the same kind of mat work things, but it's that idea of this guy is just so good at this one element of wrestling. He's got so many little tricks, and if you try and play in his world, like punked in that one spot you described, like Doug Williams is just going to clown you. Like, do not try and out Doug Williams. Doug Williams, and. Yeah, it, it, I thought it was a fun match. It, I they really saved all the leg story for the very end, where you know, um, Doug misses that big bomb scare where he move, where he does the the falling knee off the top rope and just immediately punk seizes on it. He puts uh, Williams in the tree of woe and then chops his knee, which I thought was kind of goofy. Cause like, I know he's trying to hurt his knee and in a way part of me is like, that's cool. But part of me feels like if I s- hit your hard knee with the back of my hand as hard as I could, I feel like I'd hurt my hand more than I'd hurt your knee. Like, I feel like your knee would win out in that battle. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on like the power of the hand, but yeah, I can imagine that, that the knee would get more damage.
0: And then he does, Punk does a face face wash to uh, William's knee, and the, uh, the announcing actually calls it a knee wash, which I, for some reason just made me chuckle. And the one thing I kind of didn't like about the match, other than the, the fact that it's only 10 minutes and then we're probably holding it back a little bit, is that... Punk takes two Chaos Theory Germans in this match, and because he raises his arm on the second one, he survives both of them, which I think is a bit of overkill. Like, knowing that the last one was going to play into the finish and Punk was going to be able to raise his shoulder, I don't know if I'd have him survive a first one of that. I don't think he needed to. And it was kind of interesting the way they even did it, where Punk almost over-rotated into I don't know if uh, Williams lost his grip or something, and like Punk almost fell on his head out of the first one, which was a little scary. But yeah, I thought it was a I thought it was a good match, but again, not what it maybe could have been in a different circumstance. Uh, Joe, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I I thought this was good. Doug Williams is just a joy to watch perform. It was almost comedic at times, or at least comedy elements here, like the part where Punk had a headlock and Williams wriggled out, but Punk. Still has arms in the headlock position. Like that's a loose headlock, buddy. <laughs> you need to tighten that up. But uh, the leg stuff at the end was a little jammed in, but it did play into the finish. So I appreciate that. And uh, Punk wins, but you know, again, kind of sneaks one out there going into the finals. So no, this was all good. Uh, I don't think they ever met again. I'm not. I'm blanking if they ever did. I'm sure they had a better match in them, but this was good for what it was.
0: One highlight for me, though, is after the match, um, Punk is on the outside, and even though he won, he, like, kicks a barricade out of frustration. I don't know why, but what, what what's great is um, it clearly startles a fan for legitimately that he did not expect his barricade to be kicked, and Punk seems genuinely, like, tickled pink by this. Like, he starts laughing. He's like, I scared the shit out of you, and he's just, like, talking to him and chuckling, and he, he, like, he seems genuinely happy
1: that he scared this guy for real, so... Oh, that, uh, yeah, as he was coming out, too, he's like, next fan that touches me, I'm going to knock him out. And it's like, well, given your MMA record, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I might put 500 to 1 odds on that. <laughs>
0: and, and, and Punk was getting really good heel heat tonight. You know, some nights he doesn't. This was a night where he was really well-received as a heel. Lots of fans, not everybody, but a lot of fans really liked booing him tonight. Um... We cut to who knows where for a Steve Carino mail-in promo. Steve talks about how time flies, and just two years ago he was with Eric Giulio He as he jokes, recording commentary for these innovative shows, and Steve says that was the time the times of our lives. Not really, he goes. Uh, Carino brings up a bunch of things that happened to him in ring of honor, including the riot being stabbed in the eye with a fork by homicide, losing, losing his hearing in one ear, getting a bunch of scars like a baby, um, wrestling in barbed wire and losing to Josh Daniels, who he calls one of my own kids. All thanks to homicide. Carino says 2004 is going to bring nothing when it comes to Steve Carino and ring of honor working together. He shits on the pure wrestling title. He shits on Samoa Joe. He says CM Punk is his hero, though, and that's a shoot, Carino says, and uh, he idolizes him even though he's younger than Steve. Steve says Punk is the only reason Ring of Honor stays in business, and they better thank him for that. So they're planting some seeds. I don't know. I mean, I know when Steve comes back, he does team up with the Second City Saints, but I don't know if they ever really go anywhere big with this, and... Maybe the Feinstein stuff kind of throws a monkey wrench in some of those plans. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's always like, for whatever reason, a little bit of a peeve of mine when wrestlers are like, that's a shoot. Yeah. like Because like can't they just say, like, that's the truth? Like, like you can't just use normal words because you're in wrestling. You just have to say things or shoots or works. They can't say, like, that's a lie or that's the truth. Like, it just it would just sound much more believable and normal if you said that. Like, oh, yeah, I. CM Punk is my hero, and I really mean that. Like, couldn't you just say that?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've. I think we saw that from Steve a couple times during the homicide feud, where this need to be like, no, I really hate this guy. This isn't like everything else. This is a shoot where you really don't need to do that, and it kind of makes everything else you say look bad when you're like, well, this one thing is real.
2: Yeah, but and even just the verbiage. It's like if you want to say something's real, just say it's real. Like you don't have to use like the, the wrestling lingo. I don't know. It just sounds corny to me. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm just like picky. I don't know.
0: I mean, it sounds like something you would see on like a Vince. Ru- it, it, uh, you It sounds like something you would hear on a Vince Russo-era Nitro or something, which is not what you want to be going for, and definitely not what Ring of Honor was aiming to be. So, but moving on, we go to Ring of Honor, the second semifinal match in the Pure Wrestling Title tournament. AJ Styles defeats Matt Stryker via pinball in 20 minutes, 46 seconds, after he hits a springboard 450 splash. I thought this was kind of a weird match. Um... For the first eight or nine minutes, AJ barely sells his knee injury from the prior match, even though during that match they were treating it like a big deal. And you, om- if you listen to the commentary, it almost sounds like they're surprised re-watching this match on tape, and they're trying to make excuses, because at first they talk about the knee injury, and then they start saying stuff like, well, it doesn't seem as bad as we thought it was, and uh, maybe, oh, he did have an hour to rest, and he did get metal- medical attention in the back, and maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought. And so... I would say for the first half of the match, they really do not... Striker doesn't go after AJ's knee at all. They just work a regular wrestling match. And then all of a sudden, after one move, they act like AJ is feeling his knee again. And from there, Striker just completely changes his focus. He's all over the leg. And they go back and forth with stuff like that. And overall, I thought this match was... um, It was a good match. Like, I feel like this was maybe the most intense Matt Stryker was he's outright almost healing at some points this match where he's raking AJ's eyes a couple times and he's being kind of he's got some swagger to him in this match which I appreciated and I felt like that really um, contrasted well with AJ's kind of stiffness and sometimes AJ can be a little bit grumpy in his wrestling style so I thought like that went that went well back and forth I feel like the leg stuff it never really had a huge payoff to me. Like AJ did sell his leg, but he also did a lot of stuff that would involve a lot of leg strength, and it just never really had a satisfying payoff to me. Particularly because even when um, Stryker did have AJ in a couple leg submissions, the camera had their the, was the camera angle they used was of Stryker and AJ's back, so you couldn't see their facial expressions. And I also feel like Matt Stryker kind of has this bad habit of not really working a hold. He just kind of grabs a limb a lot of the time and just holds it at an angle. It's like, well, this is a submission. It's not really that engaging. But I thought the match was good. I, I think the problem for Matt Stryker is it's a good match, but he got 20 minutes against AJ Styles. Like, this was a point in his career where he really needed to hit a home run, and this was a chance to, and it was just good. It was just a solid, like, three and a quarter star match three and a half maybe if you're being generous but you know it, it, it as, 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 on its own it was good it's just when I look back and go why didn't Matt Striker's push take off I feel it's like opportunities like this where this match would game bega- become one of those oh this is a match of the year contender. you have to buy the tape for this this might have been like a key point in his career but it's just good it's just okay um Joe what did you think yeah it was
1: I felt like they wanted to give A.J. a much longer match than Punk had in the same round. So he'd be a little more worn down going into the finals. But like you said, like you would think with Stryker getting the win almost automatically with the striker lock in round one, A.J. tweaking his leg, that's something they would go right to, and they didn't. And I don't know if they thought, well, we can't do 20 minutes of work in the leg, we'll just kind of pad it out. Because at one point, strikers he has like a double arm submission on, and it's like, do your work on the leg. like." Yeah. Do something like AJ was still, you know, kind of running around at points. He won with a 450 uh, springboard, uh, springboard 450. So, and there was also kind of this weird, like, striker started almost like cheating or playing dirty at one point. He went to an eye poke, and they like that was like kind of another facet tossed in. The whole match never really worked in the end completely. There was just kind of a little too much going on. so some very good points. Still, you know, probably pretty good, but yeah kind of not not a not a home run matt what did you think
2: yeah i I liked the match a lot, except like in terms of like striker, like you said, like having that swagger and like being more vicious, and I appreciated that until like you got toward the end where like you had a j at moments selling the leg really well, and then it was became so spotty and just like you said, like the fact that he won with a springboard like four fifty splash like in this match, like the match where you're supposed to be really worried about his leg, you know, like, 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 just like, you couldn't have done another finish in this match. You couldn't have done the discus lariat or like a million other things to, uh, that he could have, the styles clash, you know, something that didn't involve him doing a flip off of his legs. I I don't like, they just seemed like they just weren't thinking, you know, and I thought that took the match down a lot for me.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess to be fair to, uh, to Matt Stryker going after AJ's eyes. AJ did rake his brow early on, his unibrow. Oh, that's a right. Big, AJ got a big AJ chant and a holy shit chant for raking Matt Stryker's brow. That so, is a good um, point. There was, um,. It was Yeah, there were some weird parts of this also, like, uh, Gabe on commentary at one point acted like striker slamming AJ's injured knee onto the ray- ring apron was like a heel move. He said something like, I have to question his tactics doing this, and it's like, t- this is actually great tactics, he's going after an injury, which is, in fact, what AJ Styles just told his last opponent to do, so... Uh, there's also a moment, one kind of spotty moment, where uh, Matt Stryker tries a ring post figure four, and he literally just can't do it, <laughs> and he gives up immediately. <laughs> he just kind of lays down on the floor.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, you'd think you'd practice that before they actually did it like, in front of an audience, but hey. I'm sure it was fine.
0: Also, for anyone watching, again, I, I don't want to say... like It's not... Uh, in my mind it's not a bad match like it's entertaining the whole way through but it's it feels kind of like it's less than the sum of its parts like the leg stuff doesn't really have a satisfying payoff and you you think on paper with these two getting 20 minutes you're going to see something really good and it's it just underwhelms a bit while still being good but if you're watching this look there is one really good bump i think that's worth watching this for where um AJ charges at Matt Stryker, who's standing in the corner, and Stryker just kind of like back body drops AJ over the top rope, and AJ kind of takes the bump where he's um, holding onto the ropes, and kind of, you think to yourself, oh, I've seen this a million times. He's he's grabbing the ropes with his hands, and so he's going to land on the ring apron feet first, and instead he doesn't touch the ring apron at all and just takes a bump straight over the top rope direct to the floor, and I just thought it is amazing that AJ Styles did not get hurt more in his career. like Because he would do stuff like that, and where most wrestlers would take this... I mean, I'm sure he found a way to do it as safely as possible, but most wrestlers would just have landed on the apron, and he did not. So, watch for that if you're watching the match. Uh, after the match, Gabe says there might not even be a final now with how badly AJ's knee is hurt. He mentions how well CM Punk just worked over Doug Williams' injured leg in their match, so definitely building that story throughout the tournament. Um, but then, the, I think that sells another point to me, which I get throughout this tournament as well, which is Gabe sells the severity of AJ's knee way more serious than AJ Styles sells the knee injury. Like, Gabe keeps selling it like, oh, his knee's all shredded, he might not be able to do one of these matches. And I, I the, only, the best I can describe it is AJ sells this injury throughout the tournament as like it's a mild to slightly moderate hindrance. Where Gabe is selling it like, this is something that could stop him from wrestling. And and, and the, the selling does not match up with the commentary, is how I would describe it.
2: Yeah, I mean, even not just the commentary, but I guess like the backstage booking, right? They have Mike, Gary Michael Capetta later go to check on AJ, and Rave is like, oh, he'll be okay. But even that, like, Rave is like, yeah, he'll be fine. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's kind of
0: a mixed message. Um, we cut to CM Punk backstage. Punk says, ever since I got into this business, and then he cut, cuts us off, Cuts himself off and says, no, ever since I was born, wrestling has been my life. So I guess CM Punk as a baby was really devoted to grappling. Uh, Punk calls himself the uncrowned King of Ring of Honor and says tonight he'll finally get to wear a crown. He says John Walters, w- the win over John Walters was for Colt Cabana, and he hopes Colt's shoulders heal up soon. Punk says Ace Steel is in Japan right now, and the win over Doug Williams was for him. Punk says when Doug is back eating Brit- in Britain eating beans on toast for breakfast, he'll be partying with a Pepsi in one hand and Tracy Brooks in the other. Punk then says Lucy is retired. I guess I guess feeling the need to mention her because she was on a couple shows ago and he doesn't blame her for retiring. He helped she helped them get revenge on Christopher Daniels. Punk then turns his attention to the match ahead, saying AJ has beaten him in Ring of Honor before, but he knows that AJ's knee is hurt, and he's bloodthirsty. He's going to go after that knee. And then finally, Punk finishes by saying that after he wins the Pure Belt, he's going after the tag and world titles. And the one thing I did like about that part of the promo is, like, he actually is kind of laying out what he'll be doing for the rest of the year, because he will have a feud with Samoa Joe over the world title, and he will win the tag title. So, it's not just like a false platitude like a false boast for once it, it's yeah. really what he's going to do and punk is telling the truth because he
2: was actually born with a with a crippling competition addiction <laughs> that's his only addiction in
0: yeah fact, i've heard that's I've, right. I've, I've heard it told yeah um yeah so next we uh somewhere else backstage it's gary michael capetta at intermission and he's talking to hc loke Loke is incensed over what happened tonight. He says DeVito had to bring his daughter to the show tonight because he couldn't trust her at home. She would have run off to a rave. <laughs> I still feel like bringing her to a show, a Ring of Honor wrestling show, especially where Special K is there, maybe not the best idea, but who am I to question a parent? I don't have kids.
2: But it's because his wife is in rehab again. Yeah,
0: that, that's he goes on to mention, he says, that the girl's mom is in rehab, so she couldn't look after her. And then Loke confirms that the girl with Angel Duster was DeVito's daughter. He says the Carnage crew doesn't care about winning a match with Special K. They're going to kill them. Uh, Loke then asks Gary to give him any information he learns about the whereabouts of DeVito's daughter. Gary promises him he'll try and find some.
1: The uh, the whole, you know, <laughs> taking my daughter to wrestling. Uh, reminds me of, I think it was an Iggy Pop behind the music where Iggy's mom was uh, having trouble with, uh, no, uh, Iggy's wife was having trouble with their son, so she sent them to... Uh, be with Iggy while he was on tour, which just seems like a terrible idea. And that's yeah. a general idea. Like, oh, gotta keep an eye on my daughter. I'll take her to this pro wrestling event. And clearly, nothing bad will happen.
2: Yeah, I said sending her on tour with Iggy Pop seems like a worse than normal idea, even yeah. for a rock star.
0: And yeah. also, like, like even thinking like she's a thirteen year old girl, and they left her alone backstage, like. I wouldn't do that if my daughter wasn't fully invested in the raving lifestyle. <laughs> like, uh, I, I would, I would want somebody watching her. I mean, get a babysitter. And if That's she goes, and if she goes to enough ROH
2: shows, she might end been the Raven lifestyle, which is possibly even worse.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Um, Ring of on her tag team title match. The Briscoes, Jay and Mark, successfully defend the Ring of Honor tag titles by defeating the backseat boys of Johnny Cashmere and Trent Asset in eight minutes flat when Jay pins Cashmere after he hits a J-Driller. Matt, they had been building up this match on a few, probably since at least late 2003, probably for four or five shows, and uh, it's eight minutes, and... I, I'll i tip my hat. I don't think it's good. What do you think? How do you think about this for maybe a match between probably the two of the most well-known tag teams of the U.S. independent scene of this time frame?
2: Well, speaking of the Raven lifestyle, the, it, it speaks a lot to say that one of the most memorable parts of this eight-minute match is when Gabe... Like, give shout outs to the people that were in ROH <laughs> the previous year. And thanks, Raven. It says, Red's coming back. Says, Teddy Hart's coming back next month. Says, Jody Fleisch is retired. Nope. Um, um, so, like, and, and it just, it just brought me back great memories of that scramble match from the year before where he spent, like, literally the entire match avoiding talking about anything about the match. This time it was only eight minutes, so he does talk about the match a little bit. And yeah, I agree with you. The match, um, Not very good. There's a handful of cool moves, I guess. It's really worked like a tornado match, and it's so short that I'm almost like, well, this is sort of like them burying the backseat boys on the way out. Like, that's basically what I took it as, because I couldn't think of another, like, reason that it would be like this. But there were some cool moves, such as, um, when Acid ran up the ropes and Mark just, like, pulled him down. I thought that was cool, um... When uh, J- but then there was a spot where like Jay had to save Mark from the T gimmick, but Jay was late, so they were just like holding Mark up awkwardly. It's like uh, that—that's never good because they—they you know they do the T gimmick pretty fluidly usually. Um, mm-hmm. um, Mark's big spot is like he does a tornado DDT from the top on Acid, who's on the apron through a table on the floor, and I say that was a really good spot. And then immediately after that, Jay uh, hits a spike J driller on cashmere for the win. Um but yeah, it felt like uh, they were they it felt like them trying to squash the backseat boys. That's what it felt like to me.
1: Joe, what did you think? Alright, so and uh to tie it all together my scoops earlier, uh while I was at the show, I was perusing the merch stands pretty close to showtime. I heard Rob Feinstein say uh something like, Oh, the backseats aren't here yet, don't know where they are. So I'm kinda wondering if they showed up late. Maybe that's why the Ring Crew Express segment, maybe that. Maybe that got bumped up a little earlier. That was supposed to be post-intermission. Maybe they switched spots with this. And maybe the backseats got there late. They just didn't have time to put a match together. That's why we got what we got, which was just like, you know, they just wrestled for a bit and then went to the finish at eight minutes. It was just monstrously disappointing.
2: It's funny, though, isn't it? Because didn't they do an angle in Boston over, like, in, like, September where the backseat boys were late and got in trouble for it?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. And, and Johnny Cashmere, like, we've talked about this, I think, on a prior episode, but I found a shoot interview he did, and he has some pretty, like, he did not leave on good terms, it sounds like, so uh, maybe that was them trying to take some real, like, friction and turn it into something, or maybe it's art imitating life, I don't
1: know. Yeah, this match was, it was just, yeah, they just wrestle for a bit, I like the big acid bump off the top. And but yeah, it was just you know considering the the magnitude of both teams' stature, that just you know an eight-minute match that was just nothing. You know, it was just kind of shrug.
2: Well, this is also the end of the backseat poison in ROH. I mean, mm-hmm. acid comes yeah. back, but is never really pushed, and um, and this is the
0: last time Kashmir there at all. Yeah, yeah. Um... I guess before I give my thoughts, one thing I want to ask you guys, I thought this was kind of a weird thing from the Observer Report. Uh, I guess, you know, Dave didn't see the show, but he got live notes. Did you guys notice this? I'm going to just read it to you, because I didn't. Dave writes, The other major matches were Briscoes over Backseat Boys to keep the tag titles in a match described as both short and disappointing, with the crowd turning on it when the Briscoes threw some weak-looking chops. Like, I don't remember that being like the turning point of this match.
1: I, no, I, I don't no. even remember
0: the chops.
2: I don't remember anything. I, I don't remember anything like that.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't have anything like that in my show reports.
2: So. But you know, sometimes just one person notices something and misinterprets something and that's what yeah. becomes the record. I definitely ha- I've I've mentioned this on the show before. Like I had an inaccurate thing said in an observer report that I wrote for like a smackdown taping that ended up just being in the observer and then I realized that was wrong and I was like, Oh well it's too awkward to correct this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I remember, like, once I wrote when I was some pimply-faced geeky, like, 16-year-old or something, like, a uh, a house show report. And I remember, like, the weird power I felt when when Dave posted it on his website, because I was like, I could have made up shit. I, I could have said anything here. Like, it's it's weird to think, like, you're thinking, oh, they're getting double and triple checked and stuff, but it's like, no. Like, when it comes to house shows, it's basically, it feels like he's just taking your word for it, so. For anything, <laughs> so,
2: yeah i mean what else is he gonna do like yeah but go ahead sorry
0: yeah i mean obviously with tv stuff he's getting a variety of sources but uh, i guess the thing i always try and keep in mind with stuff like this ring of honor stuff where you know one or two people from the live events could tell him something and he might be reporting it where it might just be the weird perspective of one or two people that wrote to the observer after the show yeah so
2: yeah i I, I mean mean, this crowd you listen to it all night they were not going to turn on a match because guys gave weak chops
0: I will say this match was one of the only matches of the night where... If you hear at, at the start of the match, the crowd is chanting, and they're excited, and as the match goes on, the crowd gets quieter and quieter, which is, you know, the opposite of what you want in a wrestling match, so yep. I think that speaks to the quality of this match, which I agree with you guys, was disappointing. There was something weird, like, there wasn't necessarily a ton of outright botches, although there was a couple things I noticed. Well,
2: the, thing, everything- with the thing with Jay Briscoe and the T gimmick was the biggest one I noticed,
0: yeah, and there was one more where yeah, there was stuff like that, but it also just seemed, I would describe just like kind of herky jerky, where the pacing, like everything, seemed like it was an effort to get everyone in in the places they needed to be and on the same page for things, and it was mostly just them hitting signature moves, but it was short length, and also it wasn't, it didn't have a high degree, like it, like again, it, everything seemed like it, it was an effort to pull this stuff off. And there was that big spot you mentioned where Mark p- puts, uh, puts someone through a table. But even that, I noticed, like, the camera angle, you couldn't really see the table break. But, and you also saw, like, Mark took that entire bump for Trent Acid, which is probably the right thing to do. But the camera man- angle made it so obvious that it was like, it was basically Mark going ass first through a table and then Trent Acid tumbling after him. But I guess like the biggest review of this match will be much like the scramble, the biggest scramble ever at the first anniversary show. The fact that they picked this match, as you guys mentioned, to basically do their yearly "let's thank everybody that's worked in the company this year" when it's supposed to be like a big tag team title match, like that's a pretty damning indictment of what they what they thought of this match. Exactly. But uh, after the match. We cut to who knows where, and oh my god, it's Brian Kendrick, a.k.a. Spanky. He's been released from WWE or Asked Out, I forget. He cuts a short promo about how some people say you can't go home again. But he goes over some of his early Ring of Honor memories and wonders if maybe you can. So, uh,
2: yeah, yeah, so are- I was going to say... Um- Spanky was sort of known for his like charismatic character and like kind of just being like kind of a good personality, but he didn't show that at all here. He might as well have been Jerry Lynn in this promo. <laughs>
0: I, also, I also think Spanky's kind of like his character is, you know, in the original run of his original Ring of Honor run, is this cocky goofball, and here I think he's he's being pushed into kind of this role of like just the good guy that's like ring of honor was great and good times i want to come back where that is so not what he was in ring of honor he was like the goofy guy wearing like (laughs) clothes he got from the goodwill and oversized novelty sunglasses and And if donnie b is to be believed he also might be a mass shooter (laughs) exactly and so yeah it just it's not it's not playing to his strengths as a character But it's still, it's interesting to, you know, it's crazy to think that he's already back. And he's not going to be like a regular fixture, but he is coming back. So we have that to look forward to. Yep. Then we cut to Gary Michael Capetta outside AJ Styles' locker room. Gary says AJ is getting his knee injury treated, and he tries to go in to get the scoop. But Jimmy Rave opens the door and stops him. Rave says AJ is fine. He's going to be great for the main event, but he will not allow Gary into the locker room. Nice try, Gary, at least. But that brings us to the Ring of Honor World Title four-corner match. Samoa Joe retains. He defeats BJ Whitmer, Dan Moth, and Loki when he made BJ Whitmer tap out to the rear naked choke. Um, this, is a, this match is interesting to me because I don't know how I would rate this match because there are parts of it that are just fine. And there are parts of it that are fantastic. And this probably won't be a surprise to people. The parts that are fantastic are when Samoa Joe is in the ring with Loki. And it is like they pick right up where where they leave off in Joe's debut Ring of Honor match in 2002. They hit each other about as hard as I've seen people hit anyone since we've been doing this podcast. Um, So hard at some points that I almost was on the verge of feeling uncomfortable. And there's just this electricity when those two wrestle each other. There, It feels epic and special in a way that even a lot of really good matches in Ring of Honor don't feel. It feels like there's something there's just something in the air when those two stand off against each other and the whole match overall was good action, but really those like their, their sequences at the end being so good, almost make the rest of the match look worse than it is to me because those were so fun. And before I throw it over to you guys, I guess the big story of this match that I haven't mentioned yet is Samoa Joe cuts his hand. He uh, does a tope suicida or I guess the elbow suicida, He calls it where he goes elbow first to the outside, and he puts his, his hand lands on the guardrail, and as Joe tells it, it cuts the hand basically to the bone. People know who have been following Ring of Honor around this time. Ring of Honor was infamous for these super sharp sheet metal guardrail signs that they guess the edges never got sanded down. Lots of guys got cut on them. Joe probably the most se- severe cut anyone ever suffered on one of these, and you can see at one point Joe just looking at his hand and realizing he cut himself. In fact. I found Joe's shoot interview where he goes, he gets up from a move and he looks around, and he sees blood everywhere, and he goes, instantly I'm looking, he's like, is BJ cut? Is Moth cut? Is, is Key cut? And then he looks at his hand and goes, oh shit, I'm cut. Like, I can see the bone, like, like and you can see, I looked up on the video release, you can see Joe in the corner, actually like his eyes bug out, looking at his hand, like him realizing, oh shit, I cut my hand. Gabe, Gabe even mentions that, that he looks like he's in shock when he sees it. Yeah, I guess uh, Joseph. He was watching the match later with CM Punk, and that Punk was making fun of him. Like, look at you, just looking at your match, like an idiot. um, Your hand, like an idiot. Like Punk was like laughing at him for doing, seeing so obvious. But like, blood is just gut. Like you can see it dripping out of his hand at one point. And so for the rest of the match. People are trying to get Joe tape. I guess Joe asked somebody for tape. And so people from the back are trying to get Joe tape, but they keep getting him different kinds of tape to tape off his hand and they're not sticking. And by the end of the match, Joe just has this bloody wad of different kinds of tape. And Joe in this shooter view, it's, it's pretty funny the way he tells the story where he's just like, he was at one point they brought me scotch tape and he was just like scotch tape. And they bring him, like, electrical tape and duct tape. And he's like, clearly he just wants athletic tape. But I guess they were just panicking and finding him, like, any tape they could find. And he just has this weird amount of tape on his hand by the end. But credit to Joe for, like, (laughs) knuckling through this, so to speak. Um, Matt, what did you think about this match? A lot going on in this, actually.
2: Yeah, I liked the match a real lot. Um, Like, the whole thing. Um... I thought that the fact that Joe had the thing with his hand actually added a lot to the match. Um, You know, I don't want that to happen, but like it added a hook for the part where the prophecy was working over Joe. Because, first of all, Everyone wanted to eat Joe's blood, it seemed like, or drink Joe's blood, because at one point, the ref, when he's trying to get off the tape, like, he bites off the excess tape, and everyone's like, ew. Then immediately after that, um, Moth bites at Joe's hand, and everyone's like, ew. and then Whitmer bites at Joe's hand, and everyone's like, ew. and the only person that wasn't, like, going after Joe's blood, I guess, was Hamas, I mean, was uh, Loki, um, <laughs> At different points uh, like at one point joe tagged himself in from loki and he did it by slapping key so hard in the face like i just put so hard like it was underlining the word so um it was just it was crazy and then key like broke up an stf that joe had on with like a crazy kick to to joe's head um they saved the joe versus loki parts for like 20 minutes into the match and you know like you said when they did it it was awesome but I thought Loki looked motivated here. Like, Loki, like, I, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm in for a little break and I'm just going to, you know, kind of half-ass it. He was full-on Loki in this match, and it was great. And I liked the finish, too, because Joe and Loki were, like, going at it. They were doing everything you'd want them to do. And then Moff speared Loki out of the ring and it allowed Joe to choke out Whitmer. Um, I like this p- the part where uh, Joe and Key both had their submission finishers on the prophecy, but they just happened to be positioned where they were staring at each other, so yeah. they let so they let go of the holes to beat the crap out of each other some more i don 't know I thought this was really good. I think maybe without joe 's blood, the middle part would have dragged, but I think it didn 't because like of that hook. Um, And you know, the part where Joe did get hurt, I thought was really good because he did the elbow suicida. He was just like throwing everybody around the around the ringside area. I just thought the match had such good energy and the crowd was so on fire for it. So I thought this was the match of the night easily. I thought it was like the only real match of the night that felt like special. And I thought it did Mm -hmm. feel pretty special. So I'm very high on this match.
0: I actually have some thoughts based on your thoughts. But I think at first we should go to Joe. Joe, what were your thoughts and memories about this match?
1: Yeah, I remember Gabe running out with um uh, some tape at some point. To well,
0: did you actually? I, w- I want to ask. Actually, sorry, I some people live have said. I believe during the, this was one of those. I, I think actually Joe said it during the shoot interview that you could he could hear from the ring Gabe having a tantrum in the back once he cut his hand open. Like, could you hear anything? Do you remember that?
1: I don't remember hearing anything specifically. Someone on Twitter uh as eric eels just to uh give credit said uh threw threw a chair against the wall after joe hurt his hand which, yeah you know, it sounded like a classic gabe tantrum i didn't really pick up on any of that i was probably focused on the match but uh like you said the joe key parts were the most electric part of the show by about a factor of 10 it was just crazy and it's just ah, it just kills me we never got that kind of joe title defense against him for for whatever reason but i like the match Match as a whole was very good. Uh, it was kind of structured like a tag match to start with Moff and Whitmer working together, which does make sense in that context. Uh, I don't know if we ever kind of stated the rules, but if Joe scored a pinfall, there would be no number one contender. if someone pinned Joe, they became the champ. But if someone else pins someone else, they would be the number one contender. So it's a little—I don't know why Joe tagged in at all. I would just kind of you know sit on the floor for this portion of the match. And when
0: Gabe says those rules, he calls them simple.
1: Yeah, we uh, th- he, Scott Hudson simple. there to say it's really quite simple. Yeah. It was, but you know, at the end, uh, I don't, it really picked up. But when Joe and Key had the uh, dual submissions on, Joe was yelling "trophy or the belt" at Key, meaning, do you want to get the number one trophy, or do you want to come at me and get the belt? And then they had their big showdown, which was tremendous. But uh, no, that yeah, this was like a this was a really good match with the the best parts being just like off the charts.
0: I, I thought one thing that was good about it was it's a different kind of four-way because four-ways often in Ring of Honor, they're just basically scrambles with four singles wrestlers. But I felt like these four guys, they all kind of have that aura of the hard-hitting, like, dude. And so, and plus they had the background of Low-Key and Dan Moth you know, with their history and the Low-Key and Samoa Joe have history. So I felt like you had a bit more emotion in this match, but also, like, there was an identity of this match that was more than just a lot of spots. Like there was a lot of hard hitting and it made sense that, yeah, these are four of the hardest hitters ever in the company so far. And so they're going to have that kind of match. And it was interesting. Like you said, Joe, that, uh, yeah, they did kind of work in it as a tag match, which was the one thing I thought was a bit weird, that BJ Whitmer was basically, like, the face in peril for a while to start mm-hmm. the match, and Key and Joe were basically tagging in and out and double-teaming him, which is weird because, like, BJ Whitmer is not a face. He is, like, the innocent girl-attacking, like, evil cult heel. And going to your point, Matt, I I, I would just say that... um. I thought the match did change with the blood and in a way it became more compelling because of the blood. But the one thing I would disagree with a little bit was I felt like the action kind of slowed down at that point for a little bit until we got to the low key Joe stuff because it went from just guys doing like hits and, and, and moves and became everybody biting Joe's tasty, tasty meat hand. And it was, it was kind of hard after seeing guys hit each other so hard with punches and kicks to just see like, to get like my... Like my my hackles up. I don't know what the word is for just guys chewing on a hand. Like because I, I just thought Joe is not going to submit because someone is biting a cut on his palm. But I, I actually, at the same time I do appreciate that Moff and Whitmer both like thought on the fly and took an unplanned injury and like rolled with it. They were like, "We're going to focus on this now because this is a real thing that's happening here." So I, I did appreciate that
2: yeah but, you know, I, I mean i i yeah i mean i get what you're saying i still think that that probably match probably would have slowed down anyway and this just gave it a bit of a hook but i see what you're saying
0: yeah but but yeah again i mean i really the high points of this match were my favorite parts of the night too i agree with you um pw torch reported that uh samoa joe needed seven stitches and a tetanus shot in his hand um wow to close up that cut. And I believe Joe mentioned in a shoot interview that AJ Styles, nice guy that he is, actually like stayed with Joe at the hospital that night as he was getting treated. Nice. So,
2: I don't think why I don't know why they would need to give I guess I would say the tetanus shot in the hand because I figure that's just in the body, but I'm not a doctor. What do I know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was interesting that they, you know, that like he was back because he did have such a bad falling out with Ring of Honor a few months later earlier but again as the observer said it's they said quote it was to uh, something to drive Rivar was looking for something to drive last week ticket sales and both uh, the observer and the torch and pw insider all basically said the same thing which was low-key he might come back one day but right now it's a one-shot commitment because he has so much stuff going on in japan
2: it's weird and- to think that this was his first match back in seven months that's like a long time
0: and it's funny because there was that time, like, shortly after Low-Key left and that story came out, where one of the shows, they mentioned Low-Key, maybe Steve Crano, during a mic work thing, and the fans booed. And here he gets the welcome back chance. So, like, it's funny the difference a few months makes. Yeah. Where now
2: he's beloved again. and uh, different, different, different market, too. That's part of it, I'm sure.
0: Yeah.
1: I and mean, Low-Key it, has such an aura live that, you know, you're not going to be like boo when he comes out you, you know yeah 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 exactly. To him. exactly yeah you're
0: gonna be scared he's gonna hurt you if you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh that's there was it.
1: a one point in this i wanted to forget where i think it was low-key and whitman were in the ring and like the ref doesn't kind of pinfall he says like whitman's not the legal man but whitman and key keep wrestling and i guess the ref just like oh screw it and it starts kind of pinfalls <laughs> anyway like well that gotta you know i'd it'd look really dumb if i just don't count pinfalls at all so he just threw his hands up
0: And it it was interesting, too, that Gabe's justification for this, for key being inserted into this match for the title, was just basically, Key said they couldn't do an anniversary show without him, and he's such a legend, we put him in it. Like, it is one of those things that's kind of weird, where sometimes Gabe tries so hard to tell you that, you know, the number one contender's trophy is so important, and we have a lot of structure and rules, and the top five rankings is important, but at the same time, hey, a guy that used to be a star here wanted to come back for a match, so we put him in the world title match, like... It's one of those things that that I'm interested to see with AEW, which is this idea that when you say lo- wins and losses are going to matter, I respect that, but it's so hard if you're being really like stringent with those things when sometimes you just have to push a guy into the middle of something out of nowhere to then not make that look bad. like To put Loki in just because you need tickets to sell, but then have to justify why he's getting a world title match when he left the company on bad terms and hasn't been around in seven months. like. But, you know, it happens. So, after the match, Joe and Key have an intense stare down, and it really sucks that it makes you so excited to see them have a match, and we never get another one in Ring of Honor. A singles match between the two, that is. Elsewhere, we see Jerry Lynn somewhere, who says he couldn't be at the show tonight, but he's keeping a close eye on the pure title tournament, because as he awkwardly raises his voice to scream... Pure wrestling is exactly what I'm made of. You know it. So that was a very awkward promo. You know his famous catchphrase. You know it.
2: <laughs> uh, and that brings us the, or- the finally- original Zack Ryder. Sorry, I had to. I had to say it. <laughs> I
0: had, to say it. I had to say it. Woo woo woo. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the main event match, the pure wrestling title tournament final match. AJ Styles. Defeats CM Punk via pinfall in 16 minutes, 37 seconds after he hits a styles clash off the second turnbuckle to become the first ever Ring of Honor Pure Wrestling title champion. Um, Joe, I'm going to let you lead off the match, but first I think we should talk a fair bit about. This is probably the time of the show we should talk about the Pure Wrestling title, since this is the first match with the full Pure Wrestling title rules. But before we talk about that, I thought I did a lot of research actually on trying to find. Quotes from Gabe about what his thought process was for this title. So I got a few quotes from some different sources here. The first was to the Pro Wrestling Torch. Gabe said that it's going to be given equal billing to the World Heavyweight title. And Gabe is quoted as saying, What is the point of having a secondary title that just says you're second best? Says Ring of Honor Booker, Gabe Sapolsky. And um, the Observer wrote, The feeling is they needed to establish the new title by putting it on AJ Styles, who the fancy is as a superstar, and the idea was to put the title on almost equal footing with the major singles title. If it was put on a mid-card guy, nobody would care about a new title. And then we finally go to Mike Johnson, who had an interview with Gabe Sapolsky around this time, and he has a few interesting little bits here. Mike Johnson asks, Ring of Honor is considered by fans to be a wrestling-driven product, so why the hype and push into creating a pure wrestling title? Gabe says, basically, it was time for another title, although I've always hated the idea of a secondary title. I mean, what is the point of going for something that shows you are second best? You don't see any team in the NFL win the division, the, the, the divisional championship and then skip the Super Bowl because that was good enough for them. So we needed a concept that would give Ring of Honor another belt, but make it important and its own entity so it could compete with the world title as being ring of honors top belt with ring of honor going in new directions, like more storylines, characters, blood feuds, different types of matches, etc., It made sense to have signed that showed our fans that we will always stay true to our roots, no matter what other directions we go in. So no matter what happens in ring of honor, you are guaranteed a straightforward, no frills, great wrestling match on every show with a unique twist in the rules for pure wrestling title matches. Uh, Johnson then asks, what will be so unique about the pure division? Gabe says, The rules of the pure wrestling title matches will set it apart in addition to creating the restl- allowing the wrestlers to show some creativity. There are three rules. The first is no closed fists. This will ensure that only the most realistic looking strikes and kicks are seen in pure wrestling title matches. The second is that there will be a 20 count on the floor. I have to admit... I'm not a big fan of countouts on the floor, which is why Ring of Honor never had a 10 or 20 count on the floor. However, if used once a show, it can definitely be a very effective false finish or finish, and it can add to the drama of the match. BJ Whitmer and Homicide proved that at main event spectacles when we did a test run of the 20 count, and it led to a great false finish in the match. The main rule is the three rope break rule. Each guy will only get three rope breaks to stop a pinfall or submission. Once he uses all three, the ropes can't break a hold. This will uh, this will lead to lots of strategy within the match and also some very unique and innovative submissions using the ropes. The possibilities of interesting things that you can do with these rules, especially the three rope break one, are endless. Um, Johnson asks, Will the pure wrestling division workers be exclusive to their the, that division? Gabe says... No, there is no reason to place any limits on anything. The pure wrestling title is about competition at its purest. This means that you can see several styles of wrestler compete for the title from high flyers to strong style competitors. If a guy is athletic and can put on a realistic looking match, he more than qualifies for the division. Matt, kind of what did you, what do you think? I mean, looking back... everyone kind of doesn't have the nicest things to say about the pure wrestling division it did have some good matches and moments within it kind of having heard this stuff like and just thinking back about the rules what do you think kind of about it as a whole like this concept and this philosophy
2: well i get i get what gabe is saying in some respects but it's also hard for a fan like me who like got into wrestling at a time when like Like, the late 80s, early 90s, when the Intercontinental title was, like, the cool belt in the WWF. Like, the idea that secondary titles are bad is kind of hard to wrap my brain around, even though I get the argument. Like, I honestly do. But it's hard for me to, like, actually feel that way, because it just, I never, like, that's, I always liked the Intercontinental title. Like, when, especially back when it was, like, protected. Um, And the US title and TV title and WCW and all that stuff also um the idea that he was going to make that equal to the world title like obviously that didn't really stick right like yeah. once aj left they immediately made it a mid-card title when they brought it back and it really stayed that way until kind of maybe McGuinness, um you know kind of built it back up to like have that kind of be a feud with danielson where they were trying to act like they were on equal footing and that was what two years later and that was the last champion Right, ex- I mean, ex- exactly.
0: exactly technically is, but he immediately just merged it.
2: Exactly. As far as the rules themselves, like, I don't know. I, um, I don't know. I, I'm like, I don't hate them as much as most people do. I think they're a little bit kind of arbitrary, you know, like this three-row break thing. And I don't know that it ever really added that much, um... A 20 count, I think, actually can be good. It could add extra drama to, like, near falls and stuff, like or, like, a different kind of near fall, I guess, is what I would, how I would say it, or false finish, I guess. Um, the close fist thing, like, whatever. Like, that that's obviously pointless. I, 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 The one thing I noticed about this match, they did not announce the rules to the audience, yeah. which I thought was really strange, because they did that later, like, later on. But you would think that that would be, like, a major thing they would want to do, which would be, like very clearly be like, these are the rules, and like have maybe have the guy standing there while the referee um, tells them the rules, like they did at the uh, tag title match at, at AEW. I don't know. I, um, I thought the, the presentation was a little bit off here
0: especially since this is again we've seen matches before where they did tests where it was just the three rope break rule or the one match gabe mentioned in the interview that was just the count out rule this is the very first match that ever had all the entire three pure wrestling rules and yeah unless we miss something that they cut out of the dvd they do not explain to the crowd what those are like joe what are your thoughts about the pure wrestling thing as a whole and like
1: Do you remember live if they explained it even, or if people were confused? I remember live the the crowd understood what was happening. Like, oh, you know, up he grabbed the ropes, he lost a rope break. People, so I'm guessing they explained it, or people were just, they explained it, like, online and people read it there. As far as the rules, like, I mean, I I get where Gabe's coming from, but it's not like people didn't have interest in the U.S. title in, in WCW or the Intercontinental title, because they're like, oh, these are just secondary belts. People did have an attachment to them. I don't know, like, what exactly you do in Ring of Honor, because a lot of other independent groups had a light, you know, a light heavyweight title or something like that. CCW did, IWA Mid-South. That, I don't, that doesn't really work in in Ring of Honor. You know, some, some groups have a TV title, Ring of Honor didn't have television. You can't really do any kind of geographical ones, so... Yeah, I kind of get where they're coming from. The pure rules, it was, you know, it's not like there were rounds or anything drastically. It wasn't drastically different from a normal match you'd see. And I think trying to put it on equal footing with the world title just kind of created confusion. Like, well, which one, you know, are we supposed to be into? It was just the whole thing was just kind of a weird failed experiment.
0: Yeah my thoughts were it's funny finding that interview from Gabe there was one line that kind of changed some of my thinking of this which was I always thought why is he doing this but there's that one line where he says this title lets like it was something to the fact that this title lets people know that there's no matter how Ring of Honor changes there's always going to be good like wrestling on the show and I feel like looking over the first couple years of Ring of Honor, Gabe's booking had a lot of what I always say is mandated variety. Like for a long stretch, there was a hardcore brawl on almost every show. There was a scramble match on every show. There was a four corner match on every show. And it almost feels like like Gabe I think he liked variety and he which I do too. And he really liked like being able to guarantee to the fans that like look, by seeing that these kinds of matches are booked, you know you're going to get one of each of these kinds of matches no matter what show you go to. And I, part of me feels like the way he said that in the interview, the pure title was almost like his idea of like telling the fans, look, this guarantees you're always going to get like one straight-up wrestling match no matter what. But I feel like that's a problem he didn't need to solve because Ring of Honor always had multiple matches like that on every show before this title. Like, there was never a show where I was like, man nothing in Ring of Honor on this card, but, but hardcore matches or, you know, there was always quote unquote pure wrestling. And like you said, Joe, the rules are very arbitrary. Like, I don't know how many people are being like, man, that would have been a great tentacle wrestling match. But if only those guys hadn't punched each other in the face, or if only there were fewer rope breaks, like if anything, when I was growing up, I was listening to, um, uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura telling me how guys using rope breaks was an example of how good a pure wrestler you were because it showed ring awareness. But Well, well, Jesse Ventura would say it was the cheap way out. That one, okay. uh, that one I remembered. Okay, well, Gorilla's the good guy then. Yeah, yeah. He's also teaching me about anatomy. But, um, yeah, it, I, like I've said it before and I'll say it again, the pure wrestling title rules were like a solution to a problem nobody had. And it's funny, when Gabe brings up the tag ones, Gabe spent multiple ma- like matches in early Ring of Honor on commentary talking about how comment- countouts were dumb, and that's why Ring of Honor didn't have them. And even in this interview, where he's introducing a, a, a division that has countouts, he even admits that he still doesn't like countouts. Like, like he's saying, well, once a show, it could be neat. But it's clear that Gabe, it's, it's actually something that kind of goes against his like, his gut feeling, which is that counts are kind of dumb, especially because he said before that the refs just ignore the counts and they'll slow it down and the wrestlers will work on the outside forever anyway, so why why have countouts? but...
2: Also, also, if you actually look at the history, I think there may be, like, one or two count-out finishes in a pure title match ever. There's one I remember involving Homicide, and, like, I don't know if I remember any others, honestly.
0: And um, I, I do think that I, I kind of see Gabe's idea of a secondary title, what's the point of fighting for second best. But at the same time, there's been a ton of great promotions that have had multiple titles that I've loved, like WWE in the late 90s to early 2000s. Um, WCW slash NWA in the 80s had a billion titles. And I think people would say that's great wrestling, you know. But there are also companies that have just had the one world title. Like, I think it can work both ways. I actually think... The the Ring of Honor didn't need a pure title. It just needed the world title and the tag titles. Like, I can see wanting to have a second title that was over, but I just feel like there wasn't enough reason to justify it. And especially with Gabe constantly saying the pure title isn't about technical wrestling, it's just about competition at its purest. We never get an explanation to what that means. And that also kind of tells you, like, if you're saying these matches are about competition at its purest, does that mean every other match on a Ring of Honor show that isn't with these rules is not competition at its purest? Like, it's kind of weirdly shitting on everything else in a, in a slight way. But, I mean, enough about that. I mean, let's get to the match. AJ Styles and CM Punk wrestled. Joe, what do you think about the match itself?
1: Well, like I said, the crowd live understood like the rope break things and all that but they did it in a weird way like you know aj has a wrist lock on punk so punk grabs top rope to kind of do a back flip out move we've seen a bunch and the ref says uh oh that's a rope break and you know punk is complaining and you know the commentary is like oh i don't know about that one and then there's a later section where aj has i think an illegal move on it and punk grabs a rope and loses another rope break and they announces like oh the ref might have blown the call there and it's like these rules are somewhat convoluted enough. I don't know why you're muddying them up right away with controversial calls. That's something you could get into later on. I think, you know, they, they did a long spot where they had a they were on the floor, and they realized, oops, we're getting counted out, and they ran back in. And once they kind of got past kind of the demonstration of the rules and all that, you know, beyond the count, out, everyone lost their rope breaks. I enjoyed the match a lot by the end there, but it was just like it was just kind of a weird way to, to start the you know something you were already kind of behind the eight ball on. Um, Matt, what did, what did
0: you think?
2: Um, yeah, I agree with Joe about like I, I don't understand why they needed to introduce the weird like bad call angle here, where like where Punk is like it's a reversal, not a break, and it's like, everyone's like yeah, but and like why is the ref so dumb? Um, like the idea that in any circumstance, somebody pushing their opponent into the ropes would be considered a rope break just seems like, like, so dumb that no ref would have ever done that. I don't know. Um, but there was some other stuff, too. I thought that the, they, the spot, whoever was in charge of the spotlight, like, when they went to the floor, did a particularly bad job here. Like, there were moments where they were fighting on the floor, and it was, like, pitch black. And that's not usually what happens. Usually there's, like, a spotlight that, like, will get to them. There was a part where, like, Punk did a running dive into the crowd onto AJ, and it was just pitch black. You couldn't see what was going on. Um... Also, I, I should note, I thought that we were going to get a, our second show with zero violence against women. Zero. <laughs> and, and then, out of the blue, you see Tracy Brooks. She's at ringside. This is the only match that she's at ringside with Punk for. And AJ and Punk are like doing crisscross spots. And all of a sudden, AJ runs out of the ring and starts strangling Tracy Brooks. And as you pointed out to me, I'm pretty sure it was for no reason. I don't remember the camera showing her, like, tripping him. Not that that would make it okay, but, like, it just seemed like AJ was just desperately wanting to strangle this woman who was at ringside. And, like, he just really, like, he grabbed her by the throat. Like, and it was like, wow, like, imagine there ever being a time in wrestling, never mind, like, in the the 21st century, where people were just like, yeah, that's fine. That's not a, that's not really that, anything I will remember or think about. Um, really, really strange. Um, uh, as far as the match itself, I agree with Joe, like, the selling by AJ was kind of spotty, like, just like in the previous match, like, he would sell his leg, then he wouldn't, and like you said, Gabe maybe, like, pushed it more than it actually was pushed in the match itself, but, um, once they got down the stretch with their reversals, and, like, I like, was a really cool spot where they repeated the ending of their first match, it just continues, where, Punk went for the shining wizard, and Punk, uh, and then AJ caught him in the Styles Clash, but this time Punk kicked out, and I thought yeah. that was like a really good earned near fall. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, um, I don't know. I just I, I really liked that, like the like getting you know the top roach Styles Clash where he was doing the Styles Clash, like facing back into the ring and like go turning inward. I thought that was like a different way of doing it. I thought that was a really good finish um i don't know i thought like it got pretty good and dramatic near the end i thought the rules clearly seemed like a work in progress there were some spotty moments so i didn't think it was like a fully great match but i thought it got to the point of being very good and like the crowd they were tired and the wrestlers seemed tired but everybody like worked their hardest to stay into it so it like it still felt like a main event um maybe mildly disappointing considering but i'd still say a very good match
0: where would you compare this versus their, I mean, I don't know if, we, if our memories are going to be up to the task, but where would this compare to their previous singles match that they've had in Ring of Honor?
2: I like the first match better. I Me thought, for too. one thing, the, uh, the expectations were maybe not the same, so like, they were able to surprise you. They did a lot of innovative stuff in that first match, um, which I don't think happened here. But this match was good. Like, I, I'm not, like, it's not like that match blew this one away or anything, but that's definitely the better of the two, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I thought this match was good, but the way I would compare it to the first one would be if the first one I would put at like three and three quarter to four stars, this is more like a three and a half to three and a three quarter. It's just a notch below. It's not that much worse, but it's not quite as good as, as the last one. The rules and I think like some of the production stuff like took it down a little bit. I absolutely agree, especially like like Joe was mentioning. That is clearly like an intentional part of the story that both of Punk's first two rope breaks that he got caught on weren't really his fault, and even on especially on the second one where um, AJ ties him up in the ropes with a submission, Gabe and and is outright saying, you know, Punk got the shaft on this. That that's not right, and I think that's such a bad decision to to have this match like this because on one hand, I know what Gabe's doing and it makes perfect sense because the very next show it's a CM Punk AJ Styles rematch so you need if it's good, the third time they've wrestled in less than a year you need a reason for them to have a rematch if you're going to go to that match and so
2: and, the, re- and ma- the and the rematch has a special referee so like the whole referee thing goes into play also
0: yeah so in that sense it's all booking 101 and it makes perfect sense and it's very logical but i guess my problem is one you're doing it in the very first pure rules match ever. And like kind of what Joe was alluding to, like, I think that really gets it off on the wrong foot. Cause you're basically telling the fans, Hey, here's what you can look forward to fans with the pure title stuff. The ref's getting the call wrong. Like yeah. <laughs> more things for the ref to screw up. Isn't this a great new kind of match? Like it was almost like, um, you know, what reminds me of is when impact a few years ago, they tried to do that new title that they got quickly got rid of where it would be in rounds. The matches would be in rounds and then three judges would give on the score. And they were like, impact was doing stuff like, Oh, the judges can get the call wrong or there could be draws. And it's like, this is just what fans have been missing. Like judges screwing up results or draws. Like it's like, this is the wrong first impression to give for this. Cause to me, if I watch this match, I'd be like, is this what we're going to see from now on? Like refs fucking things up. And the other thing that I think is, is not great about it is, CM Punk is the heel here, and he's getting screwed over. Like, the optics of that are kind of weird. Like, we're being put in a position where we're supposed to feel bad for the guy that's been a dick all night that the crowd has been booing. Like, even, even Gabe kind of is like, you know, he's kind of grudgingly like, you know, I gotta give it to Punk there. Like, you know, I usually don't see it his way, but, you know, he's getting, you know, that wasn't the right. But it's like, he shouldn't be in the position where he's having to, like, say that a bad like a heel is getting screwed over that those two things work against each other. But as far as a match, I think AJ is like a sneaky good opponent for punk. Normally I think when punk wrestles really athletic guys, he tries to match them like for pace and athleticism. And he, that usually doesn't work out. But I think with AJ, for some reason, AJ actually slows down a little bit. And for some reason, I just think they work well together And even though this match was not as good as the last one, I still feel like there's something about their offense where Punk's offense has more weight to it when he's wrestling AJ. And they just work... It's a sneaky good combination. They work well together. I agree with you, Matt. The near fall off the Shining Wizard thing that played off the last match that was like a perfect earned near fall where I felt like Punk didn't earn kicking out of two Chaos Theories in the last match. I felt like this is example where you can have a guy kick out of a finisher and it feels completely earned because it's referenced in a, lot in a previous match and you can see yourself going, Punk has enough strength to know like I've got to succeed where I failed before. Um, there was some really good action in this, but just, yeah, and even the end did kind of smartly show how the 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 three um, rope break rule can affect things because when AJ hits the second styles clash and gets the pin, he's so close to the ropes that Punk gets his leg on the ropes, but it doesn't matter because they've both used up their rope breaks. So that's a good example of like, hey, fans, like it's not just submissions. If you use up your rope breaks, you can get pinned right on the edge of the ring and it doesn't matter. But one other thing I thought was a little weird was, I don't know if you guys noticed this, so in the third rope break that uh, Punk ends up using, his third rope break, he gets AJ in this submission where he, where they're both kind of on their knees and he ties up his legs with AJ's, but then AJ tries to counter He grab He like leans back and he grabs a, uh, Punk's head and he torques on his neck. So AJ gets out of the neck hold, but then Punk, I mean Punk gets out of the neck hold, but then Punk immediately grabs the ropes to break up the hold. Because at that, that point, if he gets out of the neck hold, the hold he's in is a hold he applied to AJ. Like, he's grabbing the ropes to get out of a hold he put on. It, it was really weird. But, I don't know if you guys noticed that or not.
2: I think I remember the spot. Uh, yeah, I Yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. Yeah, like, like, they didn't do anything to change the position of their legs. So, it wouldn't
0: actually make him the victim of the hold. Y- yeah, it... it. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. And, uh, and yeah, the other thing, like going to what Joe said one more time, uh, the AJ's selling of the legs was really spotty here, and really it wasn't a huge focus of the match. Like, it was there, and Punk put a couple submissions on, but it was never a huge deal. And even near the very end of the match, the move AJ hits to set up the his finisher is a big jumping Pele kick to Punk, who's standing on the turnbuckle, like... It's that same thing again that we saw all night, which is, yeah, AJ's selling a leg injury, but he's doing a ton of really leg-intensive moves and really not being the worst for it at all. And, yeah, that that is one of the things that kind of takes this match down a bit. But still, like, a good, enjoyable wrestling match. It's just, you would maybe hope for a little bit better, but... That ends the match, and so after the match, we get a ton of Ring of Honor staff and undercarders hit the ring to congratulate AJ. Uh, Punk protests the result, thinking he should have still had a rope break so that pin shouldn't have counted because he had his leg on the ropes. He and AJ share an intense stare down. Samoa Joe hits the ring, holding his Ring of Honor title. His hand is wrapped in a towel. It's still all bloody. He gets on the mic. He tells AJ he spent a year making the Ring of Honor title a world title, making it mean something, and by comparison, AJ's title means nothing. Uh, The crowd chants, fuck him up, Styles, fuck him up. Joe congratulates AJ, and he tells him that the only reason he has that belt is that he couldn't beat Joe for his belt. I thought that was like a really good line that, quite frankly, AJ I don't think has a great comeback for. Um, AJ gets on the mic and he says the pure title means everything to him because. And then he says something that I couldn't make out over the house mic. Um, I think he said something like, because he earned it in Boston. AJ says, Joe beat him and the pure title isn't going to be the last belt he's holding. They shake hands. AJ praises Boston and their fans a bit more yeah so
2: I got and- I got I, I feel like you're underplaying this at one point he's like so he goes um I, he when he say he says you know I really it's great like this belt means everything because I want it in Boston and then afterwards he's like let me be from Boston for just one night and I'm just like wow AJ Styles really loves Boston like he just loves it Boston more than any Joe do you love Boston as much as AJ Styles loves Boston
0: I don't think that's possible yeah is there a statue of AJ next to Bobby Orr, maybe? Like is is he has he really won them over on that level?
2: I think it's the other way around. I think like AJ has a statue of Boston outside his house. <laughs>
0: Just the big gold state.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Although AJ's never wrestled in Boston, which is still funny to me. But anyway.
2: <laughs> like like it, like, like, like amp- ten miles outside of Boston. Oh. So wait, wait he hasn't been at a WWE show in Boston? Well, I mean, at
0: this time.
1: Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I'm going to assume he's been at the T V Garden or whatnot.
0: Maybe yeah. that's why he said, let me be from Boston just tonight, oh, because he knew him. Ring of Honor would never run Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, let this be Boston in our minds one time, please. Yeah. We're going to, like, revere in a few months. Like, uh-huh. Just
2: Speaking of which, he reveres Boston.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so like, like, like Gabe was saying before, they're going immediately to the idea that the this title is on par with Joe's world title and that there's going to be a collision course which is pretty interesting to do like right away when a guy has just won the title you're already going you're already asking the questions like when's he going to face the world champ which again they never get to but things happen which we will talk about maybe on the next episode maybe so uh, next up we get Colt Cabana doing good times, great memories live from somewhere in Chicago. He,
2: I, think, I think it was actually taped at the very next live show.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, live in, in finger quotes here. Yes, yes. He says, Punk got screwed tonight, and he couldn't be with him because the prophecy injured his shoulder on a previous show. Colt introduces his guest, Ace Steel, who says, Larry Sanders who? Which made me feel very old to remember how long ago this was. Um, Ace said that... Col- Uh, No, Ace and Colt say it's not just Ring of Honor's second anniversary, but the 13th anniversary of Criss Cross's hit Jump and the 12th anniversary of Colt's Teddy Ruxpin singing that song. Colt says it's the 26th anniversary of Ace doing impressions, and Ace gives us some Jimmy Durante and a very mediocre Dusty Rhodes impression, until the real Dusty Rhodes comes in. Uh, Dusty says Colt reminds him of a roll of toilet paper, and he says Ace is good, But Ring of Honor is all about honor. Dusty says Ring of Honor belongs to the boys, and that's why Dusty is coming to New Jersey with the Carnage crew. He tells Colt he's getting as bald as a watermelon, which is pretty (laughs) funny because we're now at 15 years later, Colt, still full head of hair, um, Dusty talks about whipping special cases, high knees, and it's surreal to hear Dusty Rhodes talking about special K. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> Dusty
0: says ace can be a sidekick, makes another ass whipping joke and walks away. So, uh, he
2: was at the time trying to make sure that his, you know, young son, his like coming of age son was not getting into the raving lifestyle. Cause if he had, we would never have gotten AEW. <laughs>
0: So yeah, that, 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 yeah, Dusty is getting inserted into the Carnage Crew Special K feud. Um,
2: I um, I have to say, I didn't think Ace's uh, impression was that bad. I thought it was decent. I didn't
0: think it, I didn't think it was bad, but when I said mediocre, is because I feel like when it comes to Dusty Rhodes impressions, there's a lot of competition because it True. seems like everybody but me does a Dusty Rhodes impression.
2: Joe, was, Joe, Joe, let's hear your Dusty Rhodes impression. Yeah,
1: on the spot. Oh on the blue of the wood, baby. See, See?
0: That's not bad. Yeah,
1: not yeah, bad at all. Yeah, that's wow. It. Yeah, good That was
0: at least a steel quality. Nice. I'm telling you, and he did that on the spot without getting to plan for it, without Dusty watching him. So Oh, and one more thing I should mention before we go into the final little segment. Uh, a note from the main event I forgot to mention was Ricky Steamboat, I guess the PW Torch said Ricky Steamboat, they actually wanted him to present the pure title to the winner of the match tonight. But he couldn't, and so they ended up doing the referee thing for him on the next show. So he was actually supposed to be here, but they just couldn't make the date work, I guess. Okay, Well. But, but moving on, we return to uh, backstage at the Ring of Honor show, not in Chicago, where Gary Capetta is backstage with his Pell J train. He even puts his arm around smokes. So that might be the image for this episode. <laughs> he has a big, goofy grin. Gary says he couldn't understand half of what Smokes was saying <laughs> earlier and asks again, where's homicide? J-Train says homicide is like Patrick Swayze, Whoopi Goldberg, he ghost uh smokes doesn't know where he is or where when he's coming back gary says he'll find the scoop and he puts his arm around smokes again who tells him to be like michael jackson and beat it
2: yeah i I, so i have to say smokes is probably not the best choice for like an informational promo you know what i mean like something where it's like okay well we really got to get this point across here (laughs) who are we gonna go to
0: you can't be like julius Here's a bunch of exposition we need to get you. You need to get out in like a short, sub- succinct amount way. Yeah. Um, Gabe says, cut from behind the camera, so we get one of these classic Ring of Honor. It's the promo after the promo thing. And in comes some member of Special K I didn't recognize. It was cloudy, I think. Uh, I think cloudy, and he yeah. asks if there... He, yes, Julie smokes if he has drugs, which seems vaguely racist. I think he was asked, yes, that it is definitely. But I think he asked him for...
2: Cocaine, because I think he was like snorted a little bit, and then Julius Smokes is like, "Oh, strawberry haze, that chocolate, <laughs> that blueberry," and I'm just like, "Are you just making up nicknames for cocaine, or are these actual nicknames in any other place in the world?" I
0: I, I love the idea in my mind that Julius Smokes has actually never done a drug and doesn't know what they are. <laughs> like <laughs> this crazy twist where he's like, "You want some of that purple purple?" Like, like, <laughs> like, making things
2: up. well, just the fact that he says stra- he calls it strawberry haze, then he calls it it chocolate that he calls it blueberry <laughs> it's, it's strawberry or is it blueberry all right i need to know which berry it is
0: also if you watch this gary is playing along making the goofiest like shocked faces as smokes does this and then smokes out of nowhere just hits a really some shocking headbutt to the kid puts him in a headlock Gary says, the crew have been looking for a member of Special K, and so he runs off to find the current crew. But
2: also, uh, Julia Smokes, like, yells at him, don't ever insult my intelligence like that again. And I feel like <laughs> that's just a weird thing to say in this circumstance also. Like, what is he trying to say? He's like a narc or something?
0: <laughs> uh, Davido comes in, he starts choking the kid. He demands to know where his daughter is. The kid says "Angel Dust. Angel Dust, quote, has her. He doesn't have answers beyond this. The crew tells Smokes to leave because he doesn't want to see what they're going to do to this kid. Then the car crews start heating up a wire with a blowtorch. Yeah. Uh, Gary tells the cameraman it's time for them to leave. Presumably they're about to like murder or brand this kid. Both. And that is how the show ends, except for the fact that if you bought this on DVD or VHS tape, it was a two-desk, 2 tape set, and you got 45 minutes of second-year highlights afterwards. But obviously we are not going to cover those. You can listen to our second-year
2: highlights in our archive.
0: Exactly. They take a little longer than 45 minutes, but they are worth it. Yes. So before we get some thoughts on the show, I'll just give you some thoughts from some other sources. The Observer wrote, This was said to be not a show with match-of-the-year candidates, but a strong show nonetheless. And Mike Johnson wrote, Ring of Honor officials are ecstatic about how well the second anniversary show came off over the weekend and feel it comes off even better on video. Gabe Sapolsky says, It was booked like a movie. It came off better than I could have ever hoped. So with those those hanging in the air, Joe Gagne, how did you feel about the second year anniversary show?
1: Uh, I think the Observer kind of touched on it. There was no real excellent match, no match I was going to say. Hey, go watch this. You you got to see this. But the whole show was really easy to watch, even though it was a little. This was a two DVD set. I think the whole show went about three and a half hours in total, a bit longer than average, but it was completely watchable. And you know, most of the stuff was at least good. And there was a nice kind of flow throughout the show. with The tournament ending in the finals. You know, the only real disappointment was the tag title match. I pretty much enjoyed everything else to one level or another. So, uh, you know, not not. An all-time super show, but a definite thumbs up. I thought
0: the I thought the show was good. Like, um, it is not a great Ring of Honor show, and it's definitely not up to the standard of the first anniversary show, which was like a loaded card that felt like a big deal. But I will say that I also agree with kind of the observer thing. No match of the year candidates, but but a strong show. And I feel like, Matt, we've been talking the last few shows how it feels like Ring of Honor's in the first rut that they've ever been since they've started. And this show did not feel like they're completely out of the rut, but it didn't feel like it was stuck in the rut, if that makes sense. Like, there was a lot of good stuff up and down the card, nothing that was really blow-away, but it also didn't feel like, oh, this company's kind of just treading ground right now what, what do you agree or do you disagree um, well I think that the
2: crowd being hot for the whole show really helped it feel like it wasn't stale you know um, usually a show with a really hot crowd doesn't feel stale um, I do think that there were some of the problems that we talked about were still evident, like just the lack of personality in the mid-card and stuff like that, and the lack of any super compelling storylines. But for the most part, I agree. I thought this was a quite good show. Um, very consistent, very watchable. Um, and I would even go as far to say that I would recommend people go out of their way to see the title match, the world title match. I thought it was very, a very entertaining and different kind of match worth seeing. Um, so yeah, I think this was probably one of the better shows in a while. Um, better than the uh battle lines are drawn, which you know was the one that you said they hyped up as like this all time great show um yeah. definitely better than that um i 'm still waiting for the, you know the the big change um but it 's coming, and I thought this was this was good this was better than I remembered actually, and better than i expected
0: yeah and uh so that was a this is i think it is a surprisingly easy watch for three and a half hours so yeah. That brings us to the end of the show. If you want to contact us um at through the I mean through the years at gmail.com is our email t h r o h for through we are uh, at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF on Twitter we post on uh, there there are threads for the show on the Pro Wrestling Only message board, Voices of Wrestling, Figure 4. Um, Joe, do you have anything extra to plug, anything you'd like to mention?
1: Uh, there should be a new five-star match game episode released pretty concurrently with this one. It's already in the can. Uh, dedicated to Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. So if you're a fan of that promotion, we had a uh, bunch of fun on that one. And uh, Twitter is uh, Joe Gagney G-A-G-N-E. I used to plug Trevor's Twitter when he didn't have a lot of followers. I'm like, hey, this, this Twitter's great. More people should follow it. But now he's blasted past me in terms of followers, which is unacceptable. <laughs> Although... You know, you you delve into a lot of dark corners and interact with a lot of, uh, you know, it's like pro wrestling discussion, bum fights, basically <laughs> <So> <laughs> things you get into. So you know what, you can you can have it. You can yeah,
0: have it. my Twitter is a horror story that people yeah. be, be, best best look away from. But we'll be getting into a different horror story yeah. next time, on yeah. Twitter's because Trevor,
2: Trevor, be coming, Trevor, at our best, we have to we have to do it. It's finally here. My nightmare I mean, is upon me.
0: This is the show I have been I still have so much research to do. I've been putting it off for months. I told Matt like a couple months ago like I'll share the file with all my research. I've barely touched it since then. I have so much stuff I have to read and listen to. This will be the most research intensive episode ever because between this show and the show we are covering next at our best is the raw Feinstein scandal and I don't know how we're gonna do it, but we will do it in a way that's not, hopefully that's not gonna be me reading things for eight hours. But we're going to try and get all the information, break it down, try and sum up what the hell happened this year.
2: It's, it's going to be a longer than normal show, let's put it that way. Yeah,
0: Because we will still cover at our best, you, that episode, you're still going to get the usual review, but we will, my mind is, we're going to cover the whole story, the, the whole fall of the whole year, because it kept coming up throughout the year. We're going to do it all at once. It's going to be done in the next episode. So we will finally touch on all the facts of the Rob Feinstein scandal. Next time on through the years. Wish us, wish us, wish us luck. Yeah, wish us luck. Like, dear God, I'm gonna have to read a lot. And but until then, have a good time and uh, have a great time.